art is not a plaything, but a necessity, and its essence, form, is not a decorative adjustment, but a cup into which life can be poured and lifted to the lips and be tasted. If one's own existence has no form, if its events do not come handily to mind and disclose their significance, we feel about ourselves as if we were reading a bad book. We can all of us judge the truth of this, for hardly any of us manage to avoid some periods when the main theme of our lives is obscured by details, when we involve ourselves with persons who are insufficiently characterized, and it is possibly true not only of individuals, but of nations. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is a podcast for book lovers that happens, oh, every three or four months, if you haven't heard us before. Uh, I like to think of it as the world's most elite book club in the sense that it's just two of us, so it's certainly exclusive. Um, Bill and I are friends from a long time ago, and our goal in this podcast is basically to read books that we might not otherwise read, but we can get through with the helpful accountability of a buddy, which I got to tell you, with this last book, was about as essential a framework for reading as I've ever come across. Um, Yeah. The the book this time that we read was Rebecca West's Amazing, Amazing Tome, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. Um, It clocks in at about a half, or so yeah, half million words. Um, the audiobook is 54 hours. You can only find it on a cassette tape. And um, it is a journey through Yugoslavia is <laughs> the only subtitle they give us. Um, and it's basically, I would say for the uninitiated, something like the Silmarillion for a real place in the world that's actually like four <laughs> Silmarillions put together. So <laughs> um, this is definitely the biggest book we've read and uh we're going to talk about all kinds of things about its history and philosophy and everything else we're going to be at our most bumbling dilettante we've ever been because truthfully this book is knowledgeable beyond my ability to even research um i'm sure yours too bill even though you're a lawyer and good at research but like so (laughs) (laughs) as a as a (laughs) As just like a qualifier to anyone listening, like most of our facts are probably coming from the book or from Wikipedia, but like it's, if nothing else, before I keep rambling, it is an incredible, incredible book. It's one of those books people talk about in a cultish way if they've read it, and I get that now, but before we go there, um, Bill, do you want to just try and, um, actually, you know, before we talk about what the book's about, how was your experience reading this book, Bill? (laughs) So that's kind of a funny question, because I would give two very different answers, depending on what you mean. On the one say, hand, I'd say this is in some ways the the most interesting book I've read this year. I've read a lot of books this year, and this is one of the ones that will stick with me the longest. It's, you know, it was a wonderful way to think about all kinds of different things. I would put it down and stare up at the ceiling for 30 minutes after every third or fourth chapter, thinking about, you know, the big questions of life. And uh, mm-hmm. that was so it was a it was a wonderful experience. The problem was I was supposed to read it on a deadline in order to record a podcast with my friend Joel, and that proved increasingly difficult. <laughs> uh, 
my god. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, so this book is so funny because it's a book about imperialism, which obviously we'll put aside for now. But like it, I, it felt like an imperial project. You know what I mean? Like so, I think in some ways this book was the uh, sort of big read experience that I think like the the lay person or that like Joel when he was in high school, he kind of like felt toward big books like they're this impossible overwhelming project full of like you know kind of unreducible or irreducible knowledge and like oh crap this is the book that i was fearing you know only i'm hitting it when i'm 31 do you know what i mean like it actually it was the kind of book where like i had to almost give in to the things that she wanted to talk about do you know what i mean like it it slowly colonized my mind is what it felt like that that's a really good way of thinking about it. The other thing I was going to say is, so the podcast is the big read cast. All four of the big books we've read are big. This is the biggest book, not only in terms of word count, although I think it is the biggest by word count. It is, yeah. It's also just the biggest book in terms of what it's about, right? Like, there's no other, none of the other three books we read is about such a wide range of different kinds of things with such depth to it. It feels like one of the big epics, you know, where this is a book about all yes. of human existence. Uh, and I... <laughs> It is technically nonfiction, but it has a lot more in common with, you know, War and Peace, I would think, than with, which is funny to say because she hates Tolstoy. But anyway, she hates Tolstoy, she hates Tolstoy, Tolstoy so, much. so much. <laughs> which is, by the way, like, she has some wrong opinions, but that is one of her wrongest opinions. Not, I think what's funny is, like, she represents, um, like, I, I think a, a certain time in life when Tolstoy was still remembered more for when he becomes, like, sort of this spiritual clown. You know what I mean? Like, clowns would yeah. be harsh, but, like, he becomes, of course, known the Tolstoy movement, right? With these like utopian agrarian farms of like Christian socialism. And, um, and a lot of them are just sort of these hippy dippy failures. Um, and, but like, so his legacy is sort of that in some ways more than it is Anna Karenina for so long. And yet, of course, at this day and age, like, you know, I didn't know about the Tolstoy movement at all. And so I, mean, I, I do now, but like when I first read Tolstoy, so I, I always, but I love it because like actually C.S. Lewis, who's a little older than she is, I think, he, he does the same thing. He's always, like, mentioning Tolstoy in a sort of, like, half-dismissive way, which is crazy for someone who wrote what might be the only perfect novel. But but I agree with you. To come back to the point, I, th I kept thinking, like, I've heard this before, that, like, the epic and the big book, like, um, I even had a professor who kind of, you know, she was a writer, one of the best in the country, actually, and she talks about, um, you know, she thinks that the big book and the desire to do a big book is inherently like a male thing. You know, like you've got Ulysses and you've got Proust, who she's a fan of. You've got Tolstoy. You've got all these modernists. But I, I think that this is the feminine reaction to that, right? Like, because um, she's explicitly interested in femininity um, and masculinity. But like, here is the female written epic. It's just in a genre that we don't get to categorize as like Homer. But we should. I mean, I think this is as... This is as amazing an achievement as, I mean, probably Ulysses, which I've, I've read. I haven't read Proust, but it definitely reminds me of what I've heard about Proust, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's uh, it's also the sort of book which, and just as a, as a for the rest of the podcast, it's the sort of book which deals with some really big, heavy stuff. And there, and it's such it's so personal. Like, it's about imperialism. It's about the nature of a nation. It's about relationships between men and women and, and mm -hmm. you know, sort, sort of... 1.5th wave feminist thinking I guess you know and and there's no way to not deal with some pretty heavy stuff when we go through this book and um, so that's just gonna happen is what I'm trying to say we're gonna have to talk about what it is to have a nation I don't think we're gonna talk about that for 45 minutes but it will have to come up at some point <laughs> no it definitely is well and so yeah so let's I mean so let's try and 
I mean, there's no way to give a recap of this book at all. It is a journey through Yugoslavia, but I guess we should talk about, I mean, Yugoslavia has been broken up for a long time now. Um, and even the, the most modern, you know, variation was broken up 20 years ago, I think. Um, so I'm just going to kind of read off the countries that she goes through. Um, just so people know, kind of like, this is actually, it is written like in the guise, almost like a Trojan horse of a travel log, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But so she goes through Croatia, Dalmatia, um, Herzegovina, sorry, Herzegovina, Bosnia, Serbia, Macedonia, Serbia, Montenegro. I know I messed up the other, um, the one before Bosnia, but, um, so that's, that, that was kind of the, the country of Yugoslavia as it was created after World War One when people were kind of parceling up Europe. Um, and of course, as you can hear from the name, and maybe as you know from 1990s history, it's a lot of people who are kind of historical enemies now sharing one nation. So it is about, I think, the natural antipathy of, you know, one culture versus another, and also trying to, about, trying to overcome that. And Because the book's written um, from 37 to like 40 or 41 or something, right? And so what we'll also have to kind of talk about is like, this is on the precipice of World War II, and it's and she she is prophetic with what she thinks will happen and in so many ways. And um, for me, that was one of the most powerful parts was that like, oh, here was someone looking toward the coming war and who kind of understood the animating you know motivation for violence, maybe in a way that was both primal, but also political. And I just thought that was such a crazy project to take on. Um, so yeah, do you want to add about maybe like what the book, kind of how the book is structured or anything like how, how she kind of moves from place to place or anything? Yeah. So, uh, again, the author's name is Rebecca West. Uh, well that's, so that's her pen name is Dame Rebecca West. She was born Cicely Isabel Fairfield in 1892 and lived until 1983. Um, she mostly wrote what novels and sort of essays and such, which were all, I think quite, quite well respected at the time. I, I do think this is the book that people will remember her for in another hundred years uh, is my yeah. understanding. I've not read any of her other stuff, but my understanding is this is the one book. Uh, if you're going to only read, only going to read one, um, you know, if, if you're only going to read one book for like the year, maybe this would also be the book that I would recommend. Cause that would be a more appropriate time length than like the five or six weeks that you and I took. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Um, but it's, it's, it's called a journey through Yugoslavia. And you could say it's about the trip she and her husband took for six weeks in Yugoslavia in 1937. That's correct. Although it would drastically hide half of what more than half of what the book is about. Um, but yeah, she and her husband, she had gone to Yugoslavia, I think twice before this once for a longer time and once for a shorter time to write essays and such based on this or that thing and had and met some people and gone on some, uh, traveled around and really fell in love with the place. And so she decided to go with her husband, who is never named in the book, by the way. <laughs> She's never like my husband, Henry. And I'm sure there's a lot could be made of that. I'm going to mostly just he's, not. But he's, Well, no, but he is. But he is just like this sort of um, he's called he's, he's, his job is referred to. Right. He's a banker. Yeah. But he I, I definitely think she is trying to emphasize the way in which he like stands in for the male, for the, even the English male in some ways. And so I, I, I mean, I think there's some negative reasons for why she does this, but I actually, I think she's just so continually trying to work on more than one level, right? Like my husband, who's sort of just giving fun interchanges with me, but who also is sort of this like masculine, you know, counterpart that I want to emphasize is mostly here in the book as a masculine counterpart. Um, but yeah, they're traveling through Yugoslavia. 
and so she, she organizes it based on the different places they go to. So she has a, a big chapter or like a, a book, I guess you'd say, uh, about, you know, Croatia and then a book on Dalmatia and then a book on this or that. And then she'll subdivide those into subchapters based on whatever town they're in. Uh, there's a few that are like a monastery. Most of them, it's a town. So you'll be, you know, several chapters in Zagreb, which will be titled just Zagreb 1, Zagreb 2, Zagreb 3. Right. Um, which is a bit misleading because of the nine Belgrade chapters, perhaps two of them are about things they did in Belgrade, and the other seven of which are about the history of the Karadjordjevic Kar- and Abrenovich dynasties. <laughs> which are not, like, not about Belgrade. It's just maybe a little bit. <laughs> no, that's the best. That's, it's, that's a great point, though, is, like, she has she has three big historical moves, and she has more history than that, but, like, she takes 100 pages to outline right the medieval founding or the medieval dissolution of serbia at some point too you know um and then she goes into the 19th century rebuilding of serbia which read you know leads to yada 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 and she does it right in the middle of like we were looking at a fountain which reminded me of Kara george's attempts to, you yeah, know exactly. to right the wrongs of all the ottoman empire um okay so we we're gonna try and for this podcast this is this is such a giant beautiful big brilliant book um and I think that it is, of course, more than one book at once, you know, and it's doing so many different projects that I thought it would be helpful to kind of do somewhat of a topical, you know, move by move through the book. And we'll be all over the place still. This is still a Joel Bill podcast. I mean, goodness knows when Black Panther will come up. Um, <laughs> but like, but I do think I thought it would be most interesting because what's funny to me is that this book is still billed primarily as a travel log. You know what I mean? So like. Um, Condé Nast mentions it in its 86 like best travel books. Um, there was a writer in the 90s um, who actually wrote his stuff in the 80s who traveled through Yugoslavia, you know, which I'm going to refer to Yugoslavia knowing that, of course, that's an outdated term, mostly because it's in the book so much. And I think it's going to just help us because we're going to be referring to the stuff that she's referring to. And so I'll try and be careful with not, you know, messing up geopolitical sensitivities. But the guy goes through all the same countries and he takes this with him. And he said he'd rather, you know, he'd rather lose his passport than lose Rebecca West as a guide through these regions. And so I guess I just wanted to start um, with the most basic question is if that's sort of still one valence of the book, did this, did that element of the book, did it make you want to travel to these areas? Did she do a good job making you want to go with her into these parts of the country? She did, and I, I do want to. I'm going to answer your question, but I have one other thing I want to say real quick. I'm sorry, just to yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, is, no, no, go ahead. I think it would be inappropriate for us to not read do this podcast without reading quickly the dedication of the book because it hangs over. Oh the my whole gosh, book, yes, like the sort of yes. Damocles, and I think it's very important as we're talking about it. Uh, and so you open the book, and before the prologue, before the introduction by whoever you've got in your edition, it's to my friends in Yugoslavia who are now all dead or enslaved. Grant to them the fatherland of their desire, and make them again citizens of paradise. And that's because she took her trip in 37, and she re- published the book in 41, after Yugoslavia had been, you know, conquered. Totally by decimated. And well, well and so the that, war was over. Well, and you know what's funny is that fits in with my question in the sense that, like, so... Um, I knew this book was going to be a lot more than just a travelogue, but I, I was surprised that it was still billed as that so much, because I opened it... And I read exactly what you just read, which knocked the socks off of me, you know, um, and it kind of cut to the heart of like maybe the stakes of what she's trying to deal with. And then, of course, also the prologue. The prologue is her recovering from a surgery and thinking about um, the Empress Elizabeth of Austro-Hungary uh, being murdered by a nameless Italian, essentially, not nameless, but like a random Italian. And so 
this is great travelogue is what you're told. And then it opens with a dedication to all of our friends who are dead and are enslaved. And then it goes into this history of the Habsburgs, which of course is not my strong suit being like a normal nobody from America. And so I guess the circle all the way back though, is I think you have these weird ways in which, you know, it's not a travelogue up front, but then she goes about the business of writing about the country I mean, sometimes these are straight up magazine articles, you know, these, she's going, you know, kind of like building by building and talking about the frescoes and talking about the art. And often that launches her into something else. But a lot of times it's like, here's the beautiful thing we saw and how much I enjoyed it. And so I guess, yeah, I was just to come back to the question, which I, I know you said you would answer. <laughs> Sorry. Um, did yeah, did she do it? Was she successful kind of, if not advertising the country, you know, maybe, maybe making it, a, a, you know, a rich invitation of a book? I definitely felt, you know, she does give a lot of details about exactly what the frescoes look like in this or that church and when it was built and, and all the sort of things you might expect in more of a sort of documentary travelogue kind of project. I haven't read a lot of full-length travelogues, but, you know, we've all seen... I mean, frankly, the thing that came to mind most recently is, like, some of Anthony Bourdain's stuff, which is only yeah. sort of nominally about cooking and is really about the history of a place. Obviously, very no, very context, si very, but, uh, very similar, yeah. <clears throat> um, and so... You know, I know that if I'm ever in one of these places and I can go see this church, I will want to think about what Rebecca West wrote about it and see how it's changed since then and, and you know, know more about it. So I think it is good as a guide to Yugoslavia with two major caveats, three caveats. One, of course, it is also a lot of other things. Two, Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore, I know. both I know. in the sense that there is no such place as Yugoslavia, whereas when this book was being written, there was at least very much trying to be a place called Yugoslavia. Right. And also because the Nazis just bombed the heck out of everything. So I don't know what portion of these structures are even still standing. Um, I know a lot well, of stuff then, in Belgrade and is then gone. Even, I mean, even worse. I mean, so in the 90s, you know, Serbia bombs the hell out of uh, Sarajevo, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, they just totally decimate Bosnia. It was so funny, actually, reading this book because I, I had all these flashbacks to, like, my conservative family members making fun of um, Clinton. You know, Clinton was like the... Um, which, I mean, by all means, anyone make fun of Clinton for various reasons. Um, but they made, you know, I remember, I remember, like, he was a draft dodger or something was always the story. And then he, like, sent people to war at Bosnia or whatever, right? And I didn't realize that, like, I mean, I think part of what he was responding to was this. I mean, I could be messing up the timeline. I know he was in other places, too. But, like, the mess that Serbia was making of Bosnia was when we were like, you know, well, you were a little younger, but I was like six, you know? And so, and I remember just enough of it, probably misremembering it now on a podcast, to just be so surprised that like, here is this book that's now giving me this like emotional attachment to a place that actually was still going through so many of the iterations of what she talks about. I mean, forget the 90s, you know, in the 2000s, a lot of this stuff was happening. Obviously, stuff is still happening, but as far as the, the major countries pulling apart from each other, you know? Yeah, I mean, Kosovo only declared its independence again in 2008. So this is Right, all, exactly. These, these things are obviously, you know, there's all of the sort of... Uh, Yugoslavia was a communist state from right after the Second World War until I think 92, I think. Most of that time under Marshal Tito, who I kind of figured might show up at some point in this book and doesn't. And some some people, I know. he was a person in history in the late right. 30s, and you, is my understanding. Again, I don't know anything about this other than in here. <laughs> Same. Uh, so some people have accused this book of not being able to predict um, sort of the the rising importance of like the communist movement in Yugoslavia, to which I say there was a big war in the middle of it that maybe changed things. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe, maybe there's a maybe there's a pivot, you know, a pivot when you know. 
the Nazis destroyed everything. That might have, that might have had a yeah changed something. Well, so I want to come back to this travel log before I, I give more bad um, history of that area of the world, which is just um, so what I was surprised by because I think there's two ways to think of a travel log, right? There's one one way is to think of like, hey, here's a book that kind of inspires me to want to go somewhere, um, which is sort of what Anthony Bourdain and so forth are doing. But actually, I think the more basic you know, model of a travelogue is like, here's someone going somewhere that I probably won't ever go to, you know, like, um, at the very least, I won't ever go like she did, right? She and her husband spend, I think, a, a basically six weeks there, I think, for this trip. Right. And she, yeah. and she spends more time there other on the other trips. And she sort of just fits those memories into some of the stuff she does here. And so, of course, I'm, I'm never going to have time to spend, let's say, two months traveling along with like a chauffeur, and like one of the most educated men in Serbia, giving me all the information that I want, I could ever want, right? That's totally, even if I went there, beyond my life, right? And so I think she does really succeed more for me on the part of like, I got, I feel like I got, even though I've forgotten so much because she goes through so many details, like I love the descriptions of the coast of Dalmatia, you know? She talks about these, you know, and uh, she talks about Dubrovnik, right? Um, yeah. The ancient Republic of Ragusa. And I, I just, I want to go there. And yet I'm also, I also feel like I've been given a taste of it without ever having had to go there. And I think that is down to not only her details, but um, a little like Bourdain, like you mentioned, every place she goes, especially initially, she sort of, she sort of goes there and talks about stuff. And then she has a friend, right? She meets all these interesting, um, funny people, including, of course, the person we should probably talk about as well, her guide throughout most of the book, which is, you know, he's um, given the, the fake name of Constantine, who's um a Serbian poet who's actually like an Ashkenazi Jew um, who has a German wife. But so, but he, he and a bunch of other friendly, fun people lead them around and they meet locals and it sort of always becomes this exchange of dialogue in the middle of like a cool location, right? That's probably fair to say, isn't it? Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate, yes. So no, so I, so I, I didn't know if anything, I mean, on this, on this page of Travelogue, which we don't have to stick with forever, but I, I was curious, um, she goes so many places that actually they bleed together probably, but I don't know if, are there any places that stick out to you as far as like, maybe it's been wrapped in some regard, but like, I would still love to see X, Y, or Z? So, uh, Split is the one that I think of first, which is a town in, I believe it's in Croatia. I'm going to screw up at some point and put something <laughs> in the wrong country. I'm going to try real hard not to, but just, that's going to happen, and I apologize. And if I can edit it out, I will, and if I can't, I won't. Um, but I, I believe it's in Croatia, and it's built, something like half the town is built inside the ruins of Diocletian's palace that he built there. Yes, um, yes. And she spends a lot of time talking about the way the people who you know, moved in because there wasn't anywhere else to go, right? Like that was where you, if you were going to live there, they took up the palace, took up so much of the space. That was where you had to be. And right. so they built the whole town inside the ruins of this palace, but without, uh, at least according to Rebecca West, without cannibalizing it the way you might expect. So like my understanding yeah. is a whole bunch of middle ages architecture, early middle ages architecture in England is they would just rip pieces out of the walls of Roman structures and then build whatever they were building. And my understand at least the way she describes it, they don't do nearly as much of that. They just built this their city inside this palace, and that I think would be fascinating on just so many levels. <laughs> so if I had to pick one place, and I believe that place is at least still more or less intact, that would yeah, be actually, place I'd like to go. I think I think uh, my wife's cousin actually just went there, and I and she it was I, I felt so this is the this is the experience of reading this book is that it totally takes over your mind, and so uh, my wife's cousin just like moved to town. 
here in Denver. And then, so I saw her randomly and I knew she did this like whole like world tour with her company or something. And she'd been to Croatia because I'd seen Instagram or whatever. And so I was like, Oh, where'd you go? Where'd you go? And she said split. And like, I started to get into what you just talked about. I just saw her eyes go dead. (laughs) 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 Do you know what I mean? Like I just saw her totally go like, Oh no, I'm in for the worst half an hour of my life. And I, so I pulled out, like I totally stopped. But it was, but that was the experience of this book and why I think that this podcast was such a relief to me in general, because I, I just, I just wanted to keep talking about it with people um, because I just couldn't believe everything I didn't know was part of it. Like there was the excitement of just saying, oh my gosh, I've heard the name Diocletian. Honestly, like I didn't realize he was maybe as essential to the, you know, kind of recovery for that period that it recovered of the Roman empire as he was, right? I definitely didn't know that he was you know, from Illyrian heritage on the coast of Croatia, right? Like that, that was not, why would I ever know that? And yet she uses him to not only talk about this amazing city, which by the way, splits on the top of my list as well as Macedonia. Um, but she talks about it. So she, she uses him to talk about the city, but then she also uses him to make her first, I think, or one of her most effective entries into slowly undercutting the myth of rome right she talks about we were we we were raised with this idea of rome being like oh it was corrupt from the inside out right that the morals went bad so the people went bad and she said uh that's ridiculous you know the emperors who recovered their empire were all from the you know illyria which is basically the the ancient place ancient people who were there in the croatian area and um she talks about like every from what we can tell now, most of the cultures that were conquered by Rome had their own comparably complex or maybe, um, you know, admirable codes of like, co- you know, conduct and law. And that Illyria is one of the best examples. And of course, it then supplies Rome with some of its best emperors, including, I believe, um, Constantine, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, but she used, but, but it's an example of like, she goes right from the architecture into the person, into the history into this incredible argument that is building almost like an organic, um, undeniable case against empire. Because she just, she piles so many facts on your chest. It's like, well, I can't breathe to respond. You know, how could I possibly give you a counter argument when you've buried me under under this pile of information that I, I have to process before I can even tell you whether you're right or wrong? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, my lack of, I really don't know very much about Rome, frankly, or even less about the Ottoman Yeah, Empire. well, who and do, so... I mean, here, unless you have a classical education, which, you know, you and I, spoiler alert for everyone listening, spoiler alert, but we had the same education. <laughs> you yeah. know, we were in high school together. And so, you know, also we were in high school, you know, mostly being good test takers and bad students. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I remember I we had world history in 10th grade, but like Rome was like a two-week period you know what i mean like we blew through rome and i definitely did i mean i knew about costing a little bit i heard the name diocletian but she starts going into it and i i swear like you said a lot of the experience i read in this book was pausing and trying to just like take in not only the theses that she was putting forth but just the literal information i just didn't want to forget anything you know i wanted to remember everything she told me which was sort of a crazy experience in a book that is again half a million words long so yeah, so I, I will say the other place I wanted to go to, I would, I'd love to, based on what she talked about, Macedonia sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, Macedonia sounds really interesting, and she made a great case, which I've had this thought for a few years now, kind of slowly creeping up, um, as I've become like kind of more Anglican-y 
I've thought about for some reason the Orthodox Church a lot, and she makes a really great case for how beautiful um, the Mass is when it's done in an Orthodox, you know, kind of cathedral or chapel in the actual Orthodox realm of Christianity or Christendom. And it definitely sounds like Macedonia has some of the, the coolest kind of, you know, I don't know, ongoing traditions. But again, actually, I don't know if that's true. I don't know how much any of that stuff, I don't know how to say the name Skopje, or I don't know how you say that, um, the capital of Macedonia. Yeah, but, it's probably um, something like Skopje, but I don't know. Skopje maybe makes more sense than me putting a hard J in there. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, but so all I would say is like I, I would love that would be on that would be on the, that'd be high on my list as well. Um, Macedonia and Split would be probably my. But also, it's hard after after this stupid book. I really want to go to the Kosovo Plain, um, which maybe I mean maybe you can fill in why that Kosovo Plain is such an essential part of this book. <laughs> yeah. So the. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's Kosovo or Kosovo. I always grew up with being called It's Kosovo, Kosovo, I think. No, I know. I, I think it Kosovo, is. Yeah. So I don't know. But regardless, yeah. um, the, Ko- the Kosovo plain is where the Serbs, the, the uh, medieval Ser- Serbian Empire, finally lost their battle against the Turks and were under various degrees of Turkish subjugation for 500 years, roughly? 550 years, depending on how you count. Been yeah, a long time. 500 years, yeah. Um, and... You know, minute to minute, that looked different. But her critique of imperialism as a whole uh, spends a lot of time talking about the Turkish imperialism of the area because they held it for the longest period of time. Um, right. And I, again, I know very little about uh, the Turkish, you know, the Ottomans, the Turks. I don't know much at all. So I, I can't speak to really anything about that side of things. But at the Kosovo Plain is where it was the Tsar Lazar, right, Joel? I'm not yep. getting my guy. Yep. Yeah, yep. yep. Tsar Lazar, yep. <laughs> The Tsar Lazar is the leader of Serbia at the time, and after, what, 37 years before, like, they'd had one of their great kings and had gotten quite a bit done and were making, or maybe even going to sort of be crowned over what was left of the Byzantine Empire, and then it's just all over there. Right. And it becomes this kind of, she uses it as a theme for that final moment when you lose, you just actually lose against the imperial force, and what then everything that's going to happen to you under this crushing imperial control is going to happen to you after that after she goes there in particular and i mean she goes there and there's really not much there right it's just kind of like a plane right? yeah the one like... <laughs> the one thing that the one thing that's there i thought in the area that's where gracianista is right isn't yes. that where, like the, yeah it's not yeah far and so so there's like there's like a church essentially that has some medieval serbian serbian art and she always refers to it as like serbo byzantine and kind of the argument maybe this is a good place for us to transition to like maybe our, our history section of the podcast which is by the way gonna like Okay, people who fact-checked us, if, like, anyone's going to fact-check us, just send us an email, but, like, please don't publicly shame us, because we know that we're wrong, okay? We know (laughs) that we're wrong a lot. Um, But she refers a lot to the idea of the Serbio-Byzantine style, which, you know, is often, she says, from art critics, kind of given the lower rung of the ladder on the grades of Serbian, um, you know, aesthetics. But but, but she uses the, the... you know, the existence of the Serbio-Byzantine kind of mix um, and these frescoes and the style of things. And, and in the Gretchenista is the purest form, right, of this Serbo-Byzantine, um, you know, style. And all I to say is, like, she's making the case that actually something profound was lost. This wasn't just, like, the wheels of history churning something up and it doesn't matter, like, who wins and who loses. That's one of the things she argues against most, I think, effectively for me, is yeah. that here's a book that actually zooms out and takes in, you know, a thousand years of history at least, more like two thousand years, 
And it and instead of making the usual argument of like like um, guns, germs, and steels almost does, if anyone knows that book, sort of that like yeah, you know, the, the wheel of fortune turns and someone else wins and someone else loses, and it doesn't really matter. She makes a really convincing argument that actually no, it 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 clearly matters who wins. That all empires are not the same, and that who knows what the Serbian Empire would have been like. But we have really good evidence. Um, she thinks, and she puts in this book to say that it would have been a better continuation of the Byzantine gracefulness, elegance, whatever, the Byzantine model, um, which she thinks is good overall, than what followed it, which was, of course, the Ottoman Empire sweeping through um, the various countries that are you know, kind of contained in what was called Yugoslavia. And then, of course, when the Ottoman Empire is done, the other half is taken over by Austria um, or Hungary when the Austrian-Hungarian um, alliance happens. And so she talks about how these... this. This, this little bunch of countries, the Balkans, they're sort of the perfect example of imperialism at its, you know, at its worst, which actually is imperialism at its core, because it's it's not just one empire, right? Like you have the Italians, you've got the Austrians, you've got the Hungarians, you've got the Romans. At one point, Napoleon is sweeping through part of Croatia, right? I mean, yep. you've got the Ottoman Empire. So literally, you have like every major empire that we can talk about in Europe conquering at least one part of the countries that she's looking through and the co the Kosovo plain I think is the heart of it where here's where Serbia Serbia lost its future and and also here's where we preserve kind of this little jewel of Gracinista which I hope I'm saying right um and so it's weird because I actually like it sounds like the ugliest place of everywhere she visits and I, who knows if it survives I actually didn't look that up but if I was near it, I think I would have to go to it, you know, which I think is a good way to say, like, she does an excellent job making the history personal, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So what? Other, so let's 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 talk about I mean, let's talk about the historical stuff. What about this as a book of history? Did you find revelatory or maybe daunting or just what was you know, what was the experience of trying to, to work through the history? And, and maybe how does she put the history in there as well? Whatever you want to talk about. Sure. So it, it is it, as a book of history. I have no reason to think it's not accurate. I, of course, have no idea. So it may turn out that this was all not what happened at all. Uh, so I'm right. going to assume for the time being that she's uh, not lying to me. And I, I haven't read anything to say she is. I just, I felt really unprepared for how to, not that I know a lot about any historical area, but there are some where I know a little bit, so I can sort of right. like know where to look to see, is this what happened or not? And nothing. I don't know nothing about any of this. So um, it's also, it's daunting because, because I don't know anything about it, I have no context for any of it right and sometimes right. she assumes that there'll be a reference you do know something about like she, she assumes you don't know anything about yugoslavia really but she'll assume you know more about rome than i do or more about the ottoman empire than i do so she'll be like and this happened at the time of so-and-so and i'm like i don't know who that is so it was kind of hard to keep track of and also my personal weakness in the field of geography meant that i had to be constantly uh, looking at a map i know um, so i won't say it's an easy read in that regard but it's not dense it's not unpleasant to read like it's not it's not like it's a you're reading a history textbook it, it does have a strong narrative and she does try to help you out um she will particularly when she wants to reference something you know seven chapters later she'll give you a you know if this is what this was about remember so she is trying to help you through it's just a tough subject um what the way she'll do it is kind of interesting because like i said the chapters are organized by place names right it's almost always right. a town name occasionally it's like an, on, on St. George's Eve, so occasionally it's a, a you know an evening in an area, but mostly it's we were in you know Belgrade, we were in Zagreb, we were in Skopje, we were here or there, uh, and so she'll tend to focus 
her history into several chapters in the most important city in that area. Like I said, I think there's nine chapters that are set in Belgrade, but I think seven of them are either entirely or largely about the Kara Georgievich Abrenovich dynasties. And, you know, similar, the stuff in, in Sarajevo is only so much about Sarajevo, and there's a lot about Franz Ferdinand being shot there, Archduke right. Franz Ferdinand. And, of course, also a lot of this is, like, it's not unreasonable for her to assume that the reader knows a lot about the First World War because she's writing to an English audience in 1937, right? So, yeah, yeah. whereas I, of course, know less about the First World War because the Second World, World War, War kind of takes happened. over <laughs> that part of education. I know that Wonder Woman was there. Ha, <laughs> good. That's good. Oh, my that's good gosh. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, us, man. That's, that's our brand. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, I definitely enjoyed it, and I do think that if you're going to put this much history into this book, which I think you do, because her her point is that the the history of these places is so very important for understanding what's happening there, and what's happening there spills out to the rest of Europe all the time, which is actually how she starts the book, is by talking about how, again and again and again, assassinations or major events in what is then Yugoslavia shapes Europe, right? Like right. she talks about how the Slavs... Uh, the South Slavs and particularly the Serbs held off the Turks from the rest of Europe for a very, very long time, which, you know, you know she, she makes about, you know, there, there would be minarets in Paris if it wasn't for the Serbs, right? Which is certainly important. And of course, there's all kinds of complicated stuff with reading this book now in 2018 with the complicated Western Islam stuff, which we probably have to talk about, but I'm going to try to skip around right now. Um, yeah, fair. Uh, <laughs> but you know, so she spends a lot of time on like the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, which of course happened in, Sarajevo happened right there and set off the First World War. Um, and so she says the history of this isn't just like of local interest. It's essential to understand Europe as it stands now. Um, and the fact that we are, we being, you know, educated Englishmen in 1940, don't know a lot about <laughs> it is bad, not just for it's good to know about places, but it's bad because it means we don't understand our own continent. Like we, this place is not some backwater that doesn't matter. It's a fundamentally important part of of history and we should know more about it, I think, is one well, of the arguments. Yeah, well, and even, and even more, she makes the hugely progressive argument that, like, the very, if you want to tag backwardness onto these areas, that itself is the argument against imperialism, right? That this is not an accident, this is not a natural outgrowth of, like, oh, these savages or these barbarians, right? This is not some sort of lesser people's failing to meet their potential. This is a, a culture, multiple cultures, that have been routinely and repeatedly robbed, not for like, oh, a couple of, you know, bad wars in the 1800s, not to minimize those, but like for 500 years, they were picked apart by at least one of two of the major empires that were affecting Europe. Um, and actually, I, I want to do, so I, I, I don't want to get past, I want to come back, back to the history, but I want to just go on, I want to follow that thing you said about the West and Islam, because I think that she gets out of a lot of trouble I mean, a modern reader would find plenty in this book that's frustrating or eye-popping or problematic. And I do want to maybe save that for a little later. But with the West and the Islam stuff, I mean, she she's constantly generalizing. And I think some of the stuff about, you know, the Turks and Islam feels gross because, of course, we have so many, you know, Islamophobes, or I don't want to say it, so many racists these days. And yet she is actually, I will say, she is pretty much castigating toward everyone she turns her eye toward. You know, she's doing a project of like um, ethnography in some sense, but she, I feel like every culture she looks at, she summarizes in pretty blunt terms that at times I felt frustrated by. And like, if I had more sensitivity toward, let's say, you know, um, peasants or Serbia, or how about the Germans and Austrians? If I thought that they were unfairly 
maligned. Like, I think she's pretty negative toward them in the sense that actually for me, like I, at, I, at first some of the stuff bugged me, but I found her in the end fair on the whole, to be honest, as far as like, she really is just trying to call it as she sees it, which everyone claims to do. But I mean, I think um, her comments on the Austrians and Germans and also on English although not English Empire, which we'll come to. I don't know. I found it. I found it more fair than I would have possibly expected. I guess if that makes sense. Yeah. Let's, um, one of the things that's interesting about this book is I don't know if people talk like this anymore. Both, I think, because that's we don't yes. Want to be we don't want to be. That's weak. I don't just mean we don't want to offend people. I mean we legitimately think there's something a little bit not good about generalizing cultures right i think i think we, we've, right. we've developed and i think this is a good thing a better understanding that people are more individual and that, that we can draw lines about you know there certainly are distinctions between cultural groups it's better not to say and the dutch are like this and the germans are like that and the right you know because there's a lot of ways that can be bad but a lot of this book is you know my god like, like a lot of this book is oh my god i really hate the germans and the austrians which is really kind of funny <laughs> um, she really doesn't like them and but she has a good argument she argues that that's central european some of the culture and stuff coming out of central europe europe is what's going to cause another big war and surprise <laughs> yeah she's right yeah well and also i what, you know, what i kept thinking of is I, I kept thinking like the way that she so casually goes about it um reminded me of two things one um you heard about i think it was actually of all people ralph nader when some of this like because of you know we'll come to the you know the current moment in politics i'm sure at some point but like because of all of the different dialogues right now about pc and offensiveness and whatever um ralph nader has some really interesting points about he you know talking about like um he's like yeah my dad and other dads like they would they would share polish and irish jokes like that was the whole point of being polish and irish was to give the other people who weren't crap about either being what they were or being what you were you know what i mean and so it reminded me of that about like there was this sort of 1940s mindset that I agree with you is, is something that we've moved past for the better if we've moved past it. Um, but the other thing I thought of is you, cause I, I try to think in my life, like in my life, where do I generalize, you know, because everyone still has like, I think the human, I think human weaknesses don't go away. They just shift targets. Right. Yeah. And so I was trying to think like, what would be the closest analogy that I, that I would characterize as benign, but that would have a kind of a structural similarity to what she's doing. And I realized um, it's States that everyone in America generalizes based on the state you're from. Oh, Wisconsin, Wisconsinites, you know how they are, those cheeseheads, you know, like, ah, oh, someone from Vermont, and they're, you know, <laughs> they have a doula-made t-shirt, you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. and so, and so, like, I mean, that's sometimes very negative, of course, right? Some people from the South are often dismissed as lazy, racist, or whatever, um, in a way that just sweeps across, you know, I think complications and, but I think almost everyone I know does this actually. And we do it sort of because like it feels benign and who knows if it is, it probably is to some extent, but I was just thinking like, I don't know. It's interesting, but I think, but I think that is the way that she talks about the different countries in Europe, which of course are grouped together about as closely as the States in America, right? There is this yeah. geo, just this geopolitical dynamic that is both old school and what you're talking about, but also the European dynamic is just such a different i think frenzy of cultures than that it's it's still even though we know that as americans it actually is hard to imagine i think it's hard to realize maybe how how crazy it is to be squished together with that many different cultures let's go back to the go ahead go ahead go ahead go ahead it, 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 
Europe is just not very big, I guess. Compared to, like, is it, like it, it, it's like, which I think is what you're saying, but like it's really not very far from any of these one places to another one of these places. Well, no, it would be like it'd be like also like in like so Croatia and Serbia in some ways, or maybe Croatia and Bosnia. I wouldn't say it. it. It'd be like if Vermont and New Hampshire had um, slightly different languages, completely at, at different takes on Christianity. To the point that they they fought wars about it, right? Like yeah. that's what she's moving through, you know. And so I, that's that's fascinating to me. <laughs> um, but also I but also I think it gives license to maybe talk, like it's your neighbors, you know. Like when you and I talk about someone from Germany, that's not our neighbor, right? It's not even close to our neighbor. Whereas when I talk about someone from Oklahoma, I have family in Oklahoma. I feel a license to generalize, and I think that's also what she feels, um, even though she's from England. Um, no, and I think there's, and there's also, of course, you know, I, I think in our, our unwillingness to talk about cultural differences, which again, I think are based on real and good reasons. Yeah. Uh, because it's hard to talk about a different culture, you know, say this other culture does this or that, and there's always a whispered, and that's bad, you know. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, th there are differences between cultural groups, like in our, in this, <laughs> like, it's not, like, there's no difference between, you know, the, the, the average day in one place and the average day in another place. And I think we can sometimes sort of try to. Yeah elide that like no like i need to know not only i have to know a different language i have to know different you know fashion styles i have to know all these kinds of things and that, that that's there's real reasons that th things are different in different places and you have to be able to talk about those if you're going to try to talk about a history w of a place which sits right at the confluence of so many different vastly different cultural traditions i mean that's one of the things not only is there you know th this the balkans right here are within re easy access of western europe the middle east you know russia north africa russia and like even had like the mongols and stuff come to hang out for a while you know what i mean it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something like one fourth of the entire world has at some point hung out there yes. like you need to be able to talk about the different cultural influences on everything like one of the, she talks about the architecture of some of these places which is wonderful because they have these people who are very good at building things that don't fall down but didn't study architecture in the same way and don't really understand like what different schools of architecture, different sort of particular architectural features come from. So they'll build these right. churches, and I think like quite a while ago, and they'll just be this hodgepodge of different architectural traditions. So you'll have like some of those great Italian domes, but the pulpit in an Orthodox church will rise up well above everyone else the way they often do in a mosque. And, right. You know, and she says it's kind of a mess. But well, how fascinating is that, that you can have a place where that's what people honestly thought this should look like. Like, it's not some sort of deliberate weird art project. It's, no, nah, I, I like all these bits of these different churches I see all the time. <laughs> no, well, yeah, no, it's, it's an honest expression of the fusion that you live in, right? Like, they actually were just expressing the various things that made up their field of vision, right? Um, so I do want to, I want to circle back, if possible, to some of the history stuff, because she does something that it's, it's it follows the, you know, she never breaks from, the um, structure of this book is, 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 I'm sure it saved her while writing it, that she just goes from the country to country that she visited, like we talked about, right? That's that's always the basic chapter structure, even though within the chapters she goes wherever she wants to, right? But I think it, it saves her because I'm sure she would have gone insane with, you know, the structure of this book if she hadn't just followed her actual trips. Yeah. Um, but what that means is that I, so, and you can kind of push back on this if this is maybe too, um, if this is wrong, but um. I, I thought that there were like basically three main historical narratives that she sort of gives huge chunks of the text, like a hundred pages or more of the text for in, in, in like one go. Right. So um, and they were kind of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, basically 
Um, they were kind of the, the 19th century, um, basically independence narrative for Serbia that ends with the assassination of Alexander and Draga Abrinovich. And then there's um, the medieval narrative of the Kosovo or Kosovo plain, which includes a lot of um, King Stephen Dushan, who you talked about, you mentioned him a while ago, that he's the king who dies, sort of sends the country into like some splintery stuff. Tsar Lazar comes into kind of the most power, but really the death of Dushan is partly what breaks the country back in the 14th century. And so that's a lot. But like, but my point is that Franz Ferdinand is the closest in time to us. And then Alexander and Drago Abrinovich are right before him. And then, of course, the Kosovo plane is furthest in history. So she goes backwards in time. She starts with Franz Ferdinand, right? She goes backwards in time as far as those three main narratives. So that we're getting to the beginning of things like 900 pages into this book or whatever it is, right? And so I was just curious, one, um, if you thought that was effective, did you think that that was an effective way to present us the history of Serbia? Or was it just arbitrary because of how the, the trips were taken? First of all, I hadn't actually explicitly thought about the fact that it travels. But you're absolutely right. That is 100% what she does. But I hadn't thought about that as much. Uh, but I think that works because that's how it would actually... So, so a book like this is so interesting because it's not just an objective... Like, it's not a travel guide, right? Like, it's not like you could buy off the shelf, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, things to see in Sarajevo, right? Right. Uh, because it, it is it is by a particular author, right? Those books are often by just like the Macmillan Company or whatever, right? And But this, right. this is a book about Rebecca West's trip she took. Um, and that's how, when you're actually traveling somewhere, that's kind of how you actually find out about the history of a place. You have a tendency to find out more about, you hear about these other big things that have been going on for a while, but you tend to hear more about what happened most recently, because maybe that's what you lived through, and so you can kind of think about that. And then you kind of, you know, your actual experience learning the history of a place, if you go there and don't know a lot about it, is a little bit ramshackle. And, you know, you hear about Tsar Lazar and the Kosovo Plain and stuff throughout the book, but then she doesn't actually right. break it all down until later. And so I, I think it, it mirrors a way a person might actually learn those things if you went there. I think she knew a lot more about it. Uh, of course, she didn't learn about these things on this trip. She already knew, near as I can tell, yeah. every single thing there is to know about Yugoslavian history. Um, or just, like, the <laughs> world in general, maybe? Yeah, like, maybe she seems to know everything, yeah. Uh, which I want to talk about in a minute. But uh, she, I think it is effective, though, because in a lot of ways, you know, her argument seems to be this stuff is really important to know now, and so maybe it makes sense to start with the stuff that's a little bit more recent and then pull her way back to let you understand the root cause of how all of that happened. Um, yeah, I'd say, I don't have, a, I think that was a good structure. How's that? Yeah, that's, well, that's so, no, I, <laughs> no, 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 that, that's fine. That's perfect because I actually, so I, let's, let's spend just a second um, on Franz Ferdinand because I knew, I, you know, I knew that uh, his death was at the time that it happened, especially, um, and some people have, I think, gone away from this lately, some historians, but I, I think it's still seen as like the event that catalyzed World War One, right? Yeah. Um, and so she, of course, starts with that. I think it makes total sense, even though like follows her travels, it makes total sense because it has the most emotional and just like, you know, accessible impact, right? Like I'm someone who's living, you know, 80 years after this book's written or whatever, 90 years and it's like still a thing that I know about right and so it's pretty easy easy entry point to make the argument that like because the argument is I think twofold one here is why again this cluster of countries the Balkans here's why their history is so vital let's talk about hmm, the last world war which was largely 
at least maybe avoidable, it could have been avoided if things had gone different in this part of the world, right? So that's her first argument, which is like, okay. And she goes through it, and it's it's pretty – what's really convincing is that, like, Franz Ferdinand shouldn't have been killed, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, like, there's a – it's like a comedy of errors to the point that it's, it's actually what it reminded me of, which I've only seen half this movie, actually – but it reminded me of the death of Stalin, that movie that just came out. Um, yeah, that movie's nuts. <laughs> yeah, so I and I, I love that director and writer, the guy who did Veep, um, Armando Iannucci, however you say his name. Yeah, and um, he's a genius, and he gets he gets politics better than anyone because he realizes politics is just a bunch of vanity, you know, with power basically. Um, and but but it, it was literally like I I read that and I thought I should send this to Ianucci and have him make a new screenplay because this is just a comedy of Franz Ferdinand's vanity, um, the Austrian Empire's vanity, and of course like you know the Bosnian indifference to if he gets killed or not, right? Because they don't like him or Austria. Um, but what was crazy to me is like I found it. I found it less moving than some of the later historical stuff, but I do think that she's so good at the history because she doesn't take her opinion out of it, right? She's constantly giving you, like, who's stupid, who's, you know, kind of a baby, like that Franz Ferdinand is ridiculous because he married someone he shouldn't have, and then he spends his whole life being, you know, poo-pooed upon by the empire that he wants to build up because they have rules against who he married. You know what I mean? Like, she does a great job kind of wading through that, just labyrinth of information with actually Jeff, Jeff Dyer calls it in an essay, um, a successive tone, right? She has this really consistent tone, which is sort of um, usually sort of this kind of amused, sometimes erudite, sometimes really blistering tone when it comes to anything she talks about. Um, But I honestly like, I, I will remember the Franz Ferdinand stuff for a long time, I think, because I became pretty personally invested and what was crazy is I do think the narrative follows her own sort of personal epiphanies where each historical thing gets more personal. You know, like the Alexander and Draga or Abrinovich murders, they sound like bad people who were butchered in their bedroom. You know what I mean? Like she makes a really good case for that being just kind of a terrible knight that got a good king in charge of Serbia, which is why Franz Ferdinand was making imperial gestures towards Serbia which is why World War One happened. And then she goes back further and says, hey, here's why Serbian independence even had to take place because of this great thing. That anyway, anyway, so the point thing, I guess, is just that I found it so informative, but I was so surprised that it was moving. I thought each history was moving. You know what I mean? Like I, I actually, so not only did I feel for Franz Ferdinand, but um, Princip, did I say his name? Princip? Yeah, Princip? or I'm not sure, but something like that, yeah. Princip, the man, yeah. the man who murdered Franz Ferdinand, she goes into his history, and it's amazing. Like, you know, I, I wanted to know more, which I don't I just didn't know if you had the same experience of like, how is she getting me to want to know these crazy arcane details? I think there's a lot there. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. But she really wrecks him to recognize the humanity of all the people involved. Like she'll, yeah. she'll, she'll demonize a whole nation sometimes, often because they were, you know, rampaging imperialist warmongers. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, but. <laughs> She actually, she won't do that as much with individual people. Even, you know, Franz Ferdinand does not look good at the end of this, but you feel no. bad for the way his funeral goes down, yeah? Like, yeah, where totally. he's just, he, he and his, his coffin is just like stuck in a train station somewhere. And then they, the one, I can't remember his name, but the one sort of. Oh, the, yeah, the re- the really, uh, the really finicky minister who's like in charge yeah, of all of the. Yeah, he's a minister uh... of some kind. He's in charge of all this stuff. And he just spends <laughs> yeah. a lot of time posthumously insulting Franz Ferdinand's wife by like not right. allowing her to be on this, you know, 
on this sort of weird Habsburg internal, no, like caste system basically. Like and right, but she'll still take time to take that minister did this and that this other thing really well. You know, she, she'll right. She has a real, I think, a real understanding that individual people are complicated, and she won't. She sometimes will be sneaky about sort of like, and then this Serbian king did a bunch of bad stuff too, but never mind that. Uh, but mostly, <laughs> she's pretty honest about none of these people being perfect. Like, she's not exactly trying to make any of them into a hero exactly. She's just trying no. to say that they're very interesting people, probably were better than a lot of the other people around them in terms of the Serbian kings a lot of the time. Yeah. And also just that this was, you know, an, uh, you know, this was a real civilization is a lot of, I think, what her point is, right? Like, this wasn't just some group of backwoods barbarians. This was a real civilization that should be taught in the same way that and should be respected in the same way that any of these others are and was just crushed by first Imperial Rome. And then, by, you know, Illyria being destroyed by Imperial Rome, what we know of Illyria and then so on and so forth. Well, and I, I think also that the personalization of the people, it goes back to something I was saying earlier, I think, too, which is that. Um, she, she's really not giving you the gears of history excuse, right? So like Franz yeah. Ferdinand's assassination, she tells you like multiple points, including his own how his own guards could have done better, including how the chauffeur could have done better to prevent this man's death, right? That like she goes into the choices that really precipitated these world catastrophes, right? And, I, and, and not that world catastrophes wouldn't happen, but I think her point is different ones would happen and we should believe that better things would happen than what we've allowed to come to pass, you know? And so when she personalizes the, when she humanizes the people involved, she personalizes the history to a way that I, I did think, I, the, my conclusion after reading her stuff was like, wow, Franz Ferdinand died because of, of, of a bunch of people's pride, basically, you know? Yeah. And then you know, even worse, like, cause she, she, she even makes the argument, like you mentioned it, that if he had been treated differently in death, that the ire of the Austrian people wouldn't have been raised to such a degree that they yeah. would have clamored for retribution from the Serbs, right? Like they just wouldn't have, she thinks. And so you have just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hysterical in the sense that um, it's so ridiculous, but it also makes the history feel vital. Whereas I think so often in a classroom or in my own sort of 21st century determinism assumptions that I don't even know I have, it's really easy to fall back on like, well, there's a bunch of world powers and people are going to vie for power. And that's just how it is. And she really continually, I feel like called out my own, my own cynicism, to be honest, as, as kind of nasty as she can be. Um, I, I really felt, you know, convicted of sort of this dismissal of history as, you know, kind of what was going to happen was going to happen. Yeah. She really seems um, to be fighting against a sort of teleological perception of, of yes. History. You know, Rome was always going to do this. No, no, Rome wasn't necessarily always going to do Didn't that. It, yeah. <laughs> like, totally. I think, I think that's definitely one of the ways the book is, is really valuable is just a broader philosophical tome, I guess, is it's reminding you that stuff is contingent and things don't have to happen the way they did, which means that the things that are happening tomorrow don't necessarily have to go to the way go the way you think they will. Yeah, well, so that's, that means, yeah. So do you want to pivot to some of our um, bigger bigger big questions because <laughs> um, I think the history is important but I do think like so the history of Kosovo plan which I'm going to kind of say again almost just because it, it's so pivotal to some of the biggest ideas in this book um, there's like a Serbian medieval country um, they've been kind of fighting off the Ottoman Empire for a while and this isn't exactly perfect and yet eight, 1389 they lose they're, they're swept over and they don't gain their independence for 500 more years. And, you know, that's kind of what, that's the Serbian 
national history myth. That's their own version that she is kind of repeating to us. And of course, it's also her gloss in it. So the Costable Plane, though, is sort of one of her entries into the, the big ideas of the book, um, which maybe we'll put aside for a second. But I guess I was just curious, like, did you, this book's clearly philosophical. What did you take away from it philosophy-wise? Like, is there stuff that you that you were pulling out of it that you think you could put into kind of simplified theses? Or is it just so big that it's it's too unwieldy for that, you know? Well, there's at least one big idea that I think is pretty explicit, uh, which she doesn't really start to flesh out she's been laying the groundwork for it throughout but it doesn't really flesh out until really towards the end of the book and it's basically until they get to Kosovo Plain because I realized about 780 800 no 900 pages in what the heck is the <laughs> title of this book about I, I, I know I know like you know, that, well, that's what's so crazy is that it's such a it's such a long book and like there's so much worthwhile happening for the first 850 pages I had the same thing we got to Kosovo Plain she starts having her epiphanies and it's like, oh, this is why you finish the book because it gets even better. But like, it was so this was like this is what the book's about. But it was so jam packed with other stuff that I was almost distracted, you know, from like anyway, yeah. So the book is called Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, and what are those? <laughs> so like, because a friend of mine was like, what? Why is it called that? And I was like, you know, I honestly have no idea. Like, I was when I when I <laughs> bought the book, I was expecting it would be like. Oh, like a, the Welsh dragon or something like an, an important national yeah. symbol that would have come up, and it's just not. Uh, <laughs> and it's because uh, towards the end, they're near Kosovo Plain. I don't remember exactly where they are. Um, she, she goes to, they go to a lot of churches and see a lot of religious rites. That's sort of the one thing that they always go see. Um, and one of the things they see is a sort of leftover pagan-ish rite where um, a lot of the people there have a couple of, around St. George's Eve, have a couple of traditions to try to like... Uh, ensure that women will have children right and so like yeah. one thing is that the women in one church sort of hug a big stone and there's one myth is that if you can actually get your hands all the way around it you will conceive and well that, that, that. and didn't she doesn't so i love this so she that she does these like old school rites that are like very like yeah pagany and yet they're christian and she has this really cool guide um i can't remember her name now like melissa or something yeah melissa um and uh but i love it because the first rite is really like pleasant and fun and sort of this beautiful thing and i think she participates in it right Doesn't, i think rebecca they west do. yeah she and melissa yeah, rebecca west and melissa both yeah. hug the stone and um which is awesome and then they go to the second right which is where we are introduced to the black lamb right yeah, i think it's a third it's the second one where they all just kind of sleep in a big pile on like a oh you're right yeah they sleep but on the floor that's not a big deal. The, yeah the, the other big one is they go out to this rock which is out in a field it's called sheep's rock or something similarly you know like that and it's raised up some number of feet above the field, and it's it's kind of like a table, like a plinth. And she gets there, and it's just covered in blood, like old yeah. blood. And Smells. she realizes what people are doing is they're sacrificing, for lack of a better word, uh, chickens or lambs here in the hope that it will... I think it is still a fertility rite, essentially. Like, they're still hoping yeah. that it will... Uh, and so she watches as um, a couple of guys hand up a black lamb and somebody slits the black lamb's throat and then draws on a child's head like a circle or something as a way of saying this child was conceived because we sacrificed a lamb you know however many years ago and you mm -hmm. have to sort of do that to kind of continue it going um and she's horrified <laughs> by this yeah. um because it's kind of horrible i mean it sounds pretty horrible um and she spends a lot of time about how it's just it's just blood everywhere you just see sort of this because it's not like one or two lambs it's just like this a lot of people have been doing this the whole night and will continue to do it every year or so going forward and then the other story is 
uh, there's a poem that's really important in Serbia. I don't remember when the poem was written. Um, maybe in the 19th century, actually, when they're going for independence. But some time ago, about that last battle between Tsar Lazar's forces and the Turks, about a gray falcon who flies from Jerusalem with a swallow in his mouth. Like, it's a kind of a nested and odd story. But the gray falcon shows up to Tsar Lazar and tells him, look, a message from God, basically, you can choose between having a kingdom in heaven or a kingdom in earth. If you choose to have a kingdom in earth, you'll beat the Turks. And if you choose to have a kingdom in heaven, you build this church in such and such a way, and you will not defeat the Turks and you will be destroyed, but you will, you know, the God's goodness will be revealed. And so in the, in the poem, the Tsar Lazar decides to uh, build the, you know, have the kingdom of heaven and builds the church and sure enough is defeated. And she spends a lot of time thinking about this sort of tension between people who understand that uh, the way she describes it is we see the the black lamb being slaughtered and we think to ourselves that that's horrible but we still think that we have to have a sacrifice like this we still think it's how the world works right that you have to go through pain and suffering and and do bad things in order to have good things happen to you later she talks and she talks a lot about her her version of sort of the the christian story as being a the people people perverting is her you know paul and so on perverting the the notion the of atonement, the yeah, atonement but... into being like this and so she, she thinks this is a big like this is a big idea this is not about yugoslavia right this is using a yugoslavian uh like myth as a metaphor for a thing humans do right this is when she right to, to, to approach something that's very like in her mind definitely essential and universal and so she says that what we do is we see the black lamb being sacrificed and we think it is horrible to be the one butchering the black lamb but we think the black lamb has to be sacrificed and so we will often ourselves up offer ourselves up to be the black lamb we will we will take the news from the gray falcon and make the same decision Tsar Lazar did and she says but this is really horrible what if we didn't you know, we have to fight for the good things right we have to not just let ourselves be killed rather than do the bad things we have to try to actually fight to make the world better um, and so she'll use this in the epilogue when she talks about the British as the second world war is coming up just not resisting Hitler until all of a sudden they decided yeah. to yeah so uh, she yeah, ta- she talks about like left-wing politicians who will think it's better to be martyred than to actually argue for their progressive causes that will reduce human suffering, and so that's what the book is titled about. Is really, I, I haven't really finished unpacking yet why that's what the whole book is about, and yet it still feels entirely appropriate. Does that make sense? Like- no, well, and I, so I, I, so what, what I loved is I, I thought about how, um, so I, so I, I, she draws in so many other things as she's kind of getting out this idea, right? And what I what I think is really admirable about her work is that, um, you know, she's, she's a journalist is what she calls herself. She's also a novelist. So even though she's clearly like one of the great thinkers of England at this time, which there's no doubt in my mind, by the way, that Rebecca West is, is less known than George Orwell simply because this book is so long, right? This is, yeah. a, I think, I mean, George Orwell, obviously he's known for his, you know, Animal Farm in 1984, but if he's also a journalist who people talk about being essential for, you know, he recognized that communism in its Soviet form and that fascism in its 1930s form, that they're both bad. Well, she, she does too, first of all. Um, and that this book, to me, goes beyond what Orwell can do, to be honest. Um, she goes to this metaphysical plane of what, are, what, is the, what is the ultimate, you know, purpose of humanity what are our ultimate choices How, what's like these essential questions and so all that say is she gets she gets muddy right it gets pretty muddy because she goes on like she she goes after the atonement and a certain notion of atonement um about like you know 
Christ being punished so that those can live. And she points to St. Paul and she points to Augustine, who, along with Tolstoy, is one of her two favorite whipping boys, which I, I personally kind of love. because I don't know anyone who's this smart who hates both Tolstoy and Augustine to the level that she does, who's also like at one point she was a professing Catholic. You know, she pulled away from that. But like, it's amazing to me that she exists. What an incredible person. Um, but so it gets, it gets really muddy, right? And I, and I actually, I found myself not agreeing with everything um, for my own probably personal reasons, but also because I thought that she wasn't being clear, right? Okay, you, she's going on and on about like violence is, you know, the reason like the left is losing things. Like, what, like, what does she mean? And so um, I think that what helped make her case best is what you started to say that she's writing all of this between wars and she describes herself as like, what if a woman was to look out from the walls of Rome, knowing it was going to be sacked and could talk about the reasons the barbarians were going to sack Rome. Yeah. And that's, that's what she thinks she's doing, right? That's at least part of what she's doing. And so I think what she's really saying is that world war one, we experienced being the priest slaughtering the lamb, right? That was America's experience. That was England's experience. We were the hammer that won the war. And you know what? Didn't feel great. Like, glad we yeah. won, but it, we all feel terrible. Like, we destituted Germany, and a lot of people died, and it felt bad. And, I, and I'm not trying to make light of it, but I think that's kind of the reductive argument. And so she's saying, in light of being the priest who killed the lamb, now we decided that better to be the lamb than to ever pull out a knife again. You know, and I, I think for me, like grounding it in the real world politics of like, um, there was a hangover from World War One, right? This is the classic, actually, American argument that we had to be attacked on American soil before we would enter the war, right? So she's writing from the, you know, from the inside the London Blitz about how terrible things are, and America is sitting the war out, right? Um, yeah. Because we have the same hangover that it's actually maybe better to just die than to inflict violence. And I thought this was just so fascinating because I, I, I just I don't know how you resolve this issue because the real question is not I mean for her she's she's just speaking at the right moment do you know what I mean like so because for me right now in this moment in age in 2018 heading into 2019 like what is what what is applicable about what she's saying to me you know what I mean like, in a, like what could be applicable about like my activity like let's say she and I have the same politics we probably do on some levels. And let's say that I want to be in opposition to the government. Like, am I like like what's the counter example that's not just violence? Do you know what I mean? Like, because she's talking in a time of war, and so I, this idea feels a little narrow potentially. I don't think it is. I'm just I'm asking you, I guess. Does it feel like it is best served because it's in between the wars, or is it something that you could pull out into politics beyond that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think you can at least make analogies for why this is... So you hear a lot of in... Uh... Okay. So there's a lot of debates right now on the sort of center and left side of things in American politics about, like, what do we do in 2020? Like, how do we go forward? And yeah. there's sort of a tension between some people who are like, well, we should really try to appeal to the middle. We should really try to, you know, appeal to the... America as a whole and try to really be a very unifying force. And there's another group of people who think what we really ought to do is just actually double down on actually committing to the things we think should be changed that we spent the last right. 30 or 40 years trying to compromise. And we did a lot of really weird things then, and maybe things are a bit better, but we could actually make things much better. Uh, and, and in some ways, there's a way that feels sort of 
relevant, I guess, as though, like, she talks a lot about how we should actually fight for the things we're believing in, right? Like, we shouldn't just um, be martyred, right? Like, she talks a lot about how a lot of, she she talks about left-wing politicians specifically here, it's obviously a different context 80 years ago, but are are (laughs) a lot happier to just lose with honor than to actually win, right? And I think it'd be very easy to come away from that her condemnation of that to say, and therefore you should fight dirty, which I don't actually think is what she's saying. But I, I think don't she's either. saying that there's a very different emphasis between I'm going to try to make sure that I am pure and perfect and don't make mistakes and don't make things worse versus I am going to try to make things better. And I think there's a there's some validity to that as, as a different focus. And I, I think that's relevant to trying to change the game too. Like particularly we're dealing with stuff in, particularly in terms of, how should we treat, like, the American presidency, right? Where, like, the 20th and early 21st century of, like, American foreign policy, at least since 1945, is is not great, right? It's bad. <laughs> like, I tend it's to think it's bad. not good. And yeah. it's... You get some people who are sort of still nominally on the, the left, which is at least ostensibly opposed to some of that sort of imperialist stuff we've been up to, will say, well, but... It's been happening, so we still have to kind of do some of this, as opposed to saying, what if we just stopped? Like, there's a way in which maybe that's kind of breaking the dichotomy in the Black Lamb, Gray Falcon thing, right? Like, I'm rambling a bit, but there's a way... No, no, this is perfect. Actually, look beyond the dichotomy here. What if we changed the rules entirely? What if we just didn't have to sacrifice little Black Lambs? (laughs) Um, And so we didn't... And I guess guess here's here's the question. Are they two separate ideas? Is the Black Lamb and the Gray Falcon two separate but related ideas? Maybe that's... I think that's what I'm tangled up here, is I'm trying to make that one story, but it's two stories. There's the Black Lamb bit, which is, we think that life has to have a... Um, a sacrifice has to have a, a, a literal like it has to have, we have to spill the blood of something in order to have a good thing happen, and maybe we don't have to do that. Is her argument? Maybe we could just not sacrifice the black lamb. Well, the right, because argument, which is well, well, the great falcon argument is that it is better to lose for the sake of heaven. So that like so because the dichotomy exists, you know what? It's it's better not to die. Although she makes yeah. the point that the great falcon, the whole poem, and this is why she thinks the dichotomy can be broken, right? Because in the poem, she says, those guys, like um, Lazar and his men, they still fought. They still killed Turks. They still got their hands dirty, right? You can't not get your hands dirty. What we have to do is stop losing for the sake of something that's never going to happen, which is these utopias or whatever. I mean, however you want to say it. Uh, But I think you said it best with, like, there's a way in which we're trying to keep ourselves personally clean and other people are dying because of it, right? And I yeah. do think there's the analogy that I also, I thought of as well. There's actually a, a guy, he's not a leftist. He's just, um, but he is antitrust. And he's on uh, Twitter. His name's Matt Stoller. He's really interesting. He knows stuff I don't know. But um, and he's got, he's funny because he's always picking fights with everyone, right? Like he and Matt Brunig, who's also on Twitter, they're always like sniping at each other in kind of friendly ways. But Matt Stoller, for all, of, all that he is not maybe a leftist, because he's an antitrust person, he sees the Democratic Party as the party that might step up in regards to corporate overreach. And his repeated phrase is Democrats don't want to rule, right? That yeah. they don't want to rule. But they're, not just, they're not just ineffective. They don't want to be in charge in a certain way that Republicans do. And I actually do think politics aside, as far as good or bad, you look at the Trump presidency as far as the first like three months of office, they came in with an agenda and like they started wrecking the agenda, right? They, they just sort of, like pushing it through at all costs. You remember that? Um, Whereas like the mandate that Obama had, this was the classic leftist critique of Obama was that his clear mandate on healthcare or whatever else 
had to kind of be shuffled along through the usual stuff until the last couple of years of his presidency, he did a lot more out on his way out, you know? And so I, I think that's going to be a, a relevant argument. What was crazy to me is somehow as I was reading this book, I actually also read a book called Days of Rage, which is about like the violent underground in the 70s, which is like Weather Underground, Black Liberation Army, um, these other kind of basically like splinter cells of usually students who would, they would get fake IDs and they'd go off the grid um, and they would bomb places. And so the Weather Underground is famous for like not ever bombing to kill, which is not their initial few bombs. Actually, they were trying to kill someone apparently, but um, they stopped that because they got scared after they blew themselves up <laughs> in, a in a famous townhome in a, in a famous townhome incident. But so it was crazy to so to hear so to finish that book and then to hear her argument about like we are so worried about being pure that we are not ruling or at least responding to bad rule the way we should. And to have these other students who basically agreed with her, right? They basically said, it was the, they, had their, they had their own purity problem, but they're from the 1970s, they're in America, they do not know how to change American policy, so they decided to kind of do the Che Guevara model, which is to say, like, let's get our hands dirty and change things. And there's a lot of ways in which they are doing the opposite of what she thinks they should do, but honestly, it felt related. It felt like like there's only so many outlets until you do cross a threshold. And so I think her idea has limits because like, um, yeah, we shouldn't be afraid of ruling, but like we should be afraid of being tyrants, right? Like that's actually a good thing to be afraid of. And so I find the idea really effective as it exists within the world of like what you and I were just talking about or what we we're talking about with World War II. But I actually, I do think there's a weakness to it if it's just like a general principle of humanity, you know? Because I, I tell you, like, I don't know if the dichotomy can be totally broken. Um, and if it can't be, I, yeah, I do think I'd rather die than kill. That seems like a pretty legitimate position. I think that's a valid, I think that's a, that's a valid point is, I, I think it's important to ask the questions like, what should we, do we have to do this this way at all? But I, I, I get your point. Like, but if I, if I actually, if it is still a dichotomy, if I do have to choose between doing an evil thing or getting killed, Maybe it's the right, I mean, it is probably the right thing to do to just get killed. Um, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think that's a valid point. And yeah, well, and it goes along with my only other critique. Um, and I'm someone who, like, went through a period of pacifism, just, I guess, to be confessional. Like, I like I have a lot of, you know, you know my family, but for those who don't, I've got a lot of family in the military. Um, and they're still in the military, and, like, I have a lot of, you know, we come, we come from, a, like, it was a total accident that this generation is very military. But it's, like, cousins and siblings. Um and so, but what was weird is I had a couple cousins who went through this stuff in their life and they basically came out the other side, but they were for a while, um, they might still be, they basically became a certain type of Christian pacifist, you know, and they were people who saw heavy action and were very involved in the war. And so it wasn't like they were just sort of, you know, you know, hanging out in a, you know, office in Afghanistan or Iraq, they were on the front lines. Um, and they came back and they said, you know what, it's purposeless. There's no gain to violence like we haven't changed or fixed anything but we have done a lot of damage to ourselves and to our men and um so that pulled me into sort of a pacifism and so i think i had to be honest a personal reaction when she talks about um the pacifist wants to be defeated right that's what she yeah. says the kosovo plain teacher of the pacifist wants to be defeated and i i think that is again i in the context of the interwar period i know exactly what she means that that is the effective outcome of the pacifist in the face of Nazi Germany, which is why I'm probably, by the way, not a pacifist anymore. I'm, you know, I'm not sure I'm where she is either. 
But um, but I I I think that's misdirection. I don't think that's accurate. I think that like a pacifist, what a pacifist wants, of course, is not to kill people. <laughs> like that's actually what they want, right? And so to to do that kind of little math where you say, well, not wanting something means that when you're in a situation, not wanting to kill someone means that when you're in a situation that you have to kill someone, you'll lose effectively means you want to lose that to me is like like a little underhanded when we when we pull out to the matter of ethics but it's hard because i'll tell you what in the epilogue i mean she goes full bluster for like you know neville chamberlain basically gave this country as well as he could to fascist germany and by the grace of winston churchill and the english people we got out of it and I, it felt pretty, I mean, it felt, I, I finished this book, man, and I, I felt pumped up, to be honest. Like, I felt like I wanted to be, <laughs> I, felt, well, I, felt, I wanted to be active, you know, I wanted to be a part of something active, which I think is basically where she's going with the Black Lamb and Grey Falcon. So, I don't know. I, yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Were there other ideas that stuck out to you, or do you have any more to say about that one? Or So, so the other really big idea, and she doesn't spend as much, she, she talks a lot about why she thinks that south slavic culture and i think probably more serbian culture but really all of it uh and why she she thinks it is sort of more full of life it's more alive right it's more full of life yeah and some of that is maybe a little bit the way every aristocrat thinks when he goes to another country that's a little bit poorer you know what i mean like i'm not sure yeah i, I want to always put a pin in that for uh you know I, I think if you get a lot of people who are very much upper class in whatever culture they're in and send them to hang out with the poor people of any other culture, they may come away saying something like that just because mm -hmm. being wealthy and in, in your own context is stultifying. I think, <laughs> yes. I, mean, I think everyone says that. Like, I don't think that's me being a jerk. I think that's, you know, just, no, I totally pace. agree. <laughs> but nevertheless, she spends a lot of time talking about like, she'll go to a church and she'll, she'll go to see an Easter service or something and say, and this church service recognized both the bitter and the sweet and it understood that there was both winter and there was spring and it didn't try to pretend that one didn't exist she has this whole sort of like notion of slavic cultures as having a more sort of holistic view of life right of being um i think she says better in the sweet on three or four separate occasions but like that that kind of particularly in the religious understandings they'll be in a church and these are people who've had just incredibly hard lives and they're not pretending they didn't have incredibly hard lives but it is also still good to worship or to say you know, to, to sing with joy or whatever. And she, she, she doesn't, it's not where she ends the book is so much in that part. Cause she's ending the book, not narrowly focused on Yugoslavia, but rather on this broader sort of black lamb and gray Falcon idea. Um, but I think that's a, a constant narrative thread that she's got going on here. Like she criticizes English culture for not doing this basically for always trying to sort of pretend bad things don't happen or for being scared of actually being happy or joyful. And she's yeah. like, like, you're scared of being happy because you can't admit that things are ever bad. Um, and, and so I think that's, there's kind of a second philosophy throughout, which is not as developed, but I think it's pretty clear throughout that you, that's a better way to live. And I'm not sure there's a whole lot of content beyond it's good to acknowledge that life is good and bad, which is not a new idea, but I do think it's, <laughs> it's big in her book, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, I, I, well, I, I thought that was related to like, she goes on for a while about, uh, Manichaeism, right? Manichaeism. Yeah. And, um, which is basically like a form of dualism that was globbed on to a part of Christianity. And she talks about like that, you know, um, the Balkans being cut off from so much of Christendom that some of that dualism really subsisted and that you can see it in the Russians as well. Like what you're talking about, right? They, 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 they hate, they hate the bad of man as much as anyone, but they're not as bothered by it. You know what I mean? Like that they're like, they, yeah. they think you shouldn't have it, but when they see it, they're not as surprised or aghast or like pearl clutching basically. Um, 
and I, I do think that comes back at the end of the book because, um, like you're saying, I, I do think that eventually what the, the Grey Falcon plus Black Lamb stories, that their synthesis and then the Manichaeism of like, you must aim for the lighter side versus the lower side. It ends with this really clear humanism, right? That she says like one way to like, um, to uh, not as like, it's like not defile ourselves or something. I can't remember what the word is. One way that we can, you know, purify ourselves. Let me try and find the page actually real quick. Um, so yeah, so there's this one part where she basically at the very, in the, in the, in the epilogue, she says, we've got to push ourselves from the baser, from the darker side of the dualistic, you know, two-tone idea to the lighter side to the airiness to the brightness which she talks about brightness through this book so much and that's one of the things she loves about turkish homes she says their best feature is how they plan for light and but i think she really means this i don't i think she's trying to be practical about like that everyone knows that they sort of have these bad instincts and these good instincts and that there has to be a well be way to develop the good instincts which to me is sort of classic almost like john dewey argument for humanism and education right and her big thing that's more than just education is art that she really thinks that art yeah. is this enlightening or can be this enlightening, uplifting thing. And that's part of what she loves about the Balkan cultures is that um, she talks about the areas where it's either kind of subsumed by um, the devastations of empire or maybe even like, you know, in the mining town they go to, that there's less of some of this stuff. But she basically talks about, you know, when you make a cake with friends in a really beautiful way or you like you have beautiful stitching that I think the quote is you're striking a low note on the same scale that is struck higher up by Beethoven and Mozart, you know? Yeah, and she really means absolutely. that, that there's something humanizing, which do you remember that part in, um, we read, um, this, uh, this last year, we also read worst journey in the world when they're stuck in like one of those low periods of they're just stuck in the cabin. And he says, yeah, we did all, it was music and reading all the time, which those things you realize exactly how essential they are once you're removed from civilization, you know? Um, and I do think that's her point too, to be honest. So any other ideas you want to hammer out with that? I guess one idea I wanted to mention, given aside, there's this great, um, there's this great kind of argument within like Catholic Twitter or whatever that I always see. And it, it annoys me for a couple of reasons, even though I think it may not be wrong, but it loves to just like talk about how like capitalism is the very like close birth child of Protestantism. And she has this, like, this is how big the book is, is more my point, is that she has time when she's talking about the Republic of Ragusa. Um, she has time to have a whole aside on why that notion is maybe not as fundamental as people think it is, because Dubrovnik, which was the Republic of Ragusa, where how do you say that name? It was totally Catholic, and it was, like, removed from everything Protestant, and it developed the same sort of, like, what, would, what we would call, like, New England captains of industry mindset right like it has the yeah. same exact culture even though it was completely catholic and i just it's crazy like she has time in this book or she takes time to address so many things like that they're like are these essential arguments that people are having for whole other books and she just takes a couple pages to like dismantle or at least complicate another person's entire like you know phd you know what i mean yeah absolutely um yeah so do you want to i mean do you want to trip into any of the any of the like traditionalist urban proletariat exploitation discussion that she has about fascism or we want to just leave that alone for a, a different life i don't know i so one of her arguments is for one of the reasons why it's particularly later in the book why hitler and mussolini are so sort of uniquely terrible is because they've got this group of people who live in the cities and don't have anything 
they can really do and don't have and have forgotten sort of who they are and such that they can be really stirred up to get into these horrible violent things um i just don't know enough about i always get leery about that kind of thing and i'm also i'm kind of leery about the way she talks a lot about they remembered they were slavs and stuff a whole bunch because <laughs> i know you know because i'm a i'm a you know hippie dude in not 20 or hipster dude in 2018 uh is part of it but like you know and I, so i guess i'm just not really sure i have anything terribly coherent to say about that is really i guess what i mean because it feels like it's dealing with a lot of sort of conflation with ethnicity with tradition with cult you know and i just don't i don't know exactly yeah well and i any of that. it was it was one of the phrases that bugged me um is why i i guess i threw it out there because it, it does feel like because what this book felt like to me is whenever she almost tips into a bias that i'm like okay now you're just being racist she almost every time she would follow it up with something that i was like okay you're you're opinionated you're of a different time you are problematic in certain constructions of colonialism if only because you refuse to judge the British Empire at the same level as you're judging the Austrian Empire, yeah, we which is talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so well, so it's you know what's crazy is in the epilogue, the worst parting shot she gives is like, um, maybe it's, it's just the end of the book. She talks about like she wants to defend her civilization. England is worth surviving. What it's done bad is India and Burma, but that's that's chalked up to empire. She said, but that's a problem with empire, not a problem with England. Does that, does that track at all? Or is that just nonsense? Well, she, so she's really ambivalent about, she clearly doesn't want to look at it too hard. Like a couple times she, she comes up and she's really ambivalent and waffly in how she deals with that. She, she talks about how she doesn't like empire. And she even at one point will mention that she lived in one of the great empires. And she thinks that that's not good to have a big empire. Right. But right. she and her husband will both immediately be apologetic about any time discussion comes up as in, as in they will apologize they will not apologize for as in they will defend i mean like yes they, they yeah. apologetics for any time the british did a bad thing in india or africa like there's a bit where her husband is talking and granted this isn't necessarily her although um, she 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 loves to use her husband though for ideas i don't think that she like wants to support like sometimes she uses him to counter herself actually but sometimes yeah. it feels like she uses him to say stuff that she's not that she's more ambivalent on but she still wants to say but I remember there's a bit when he's talking about, I forget what's happening, but somebody's defending something I think the Austria-Hungarian Hungarian Empire did. And he says, well, I just think that, you know, it's probably bad to come in and take over a whole other nation that has a right to solve this. I mean, it was very good that we, was it, lanced Africa and, you know, <laughs> cleaned up India and got rid of the practice of sati and then, but anyway, yeah. don't worry about it. And I was like, no, hold up. <laughs> I, I don't know. think you can do both of those things. <laughs> I think you either think that it is bad for an empire to come in and take over, like, another place, or you think that there are occasions when it's okay, and I don't think you can... I, I don't know. I uh... Well, I, I guess what I found interesting, this is why it was so hard to, to reject her, because whenever she almost slips into this position of, like, you know, kind of dismissing the Turks in a way that feels racially motivated, she'll come back and talk about... She'll generalize in a, in a positive way which makes me think that the problem is her generalizing. The problem is not her being racist. You know what I mean? And the same yeah. kind of thing happens with England in the sense that, like, she builds such an effective case against empire. And she does it against every single empire, right? So she takes on Rome, and then she goes up, she goes down the ladder, right? She takes on basically the Austrians, and, you know, she mentions at one point, you know, you know, Venice overreaching, whatever. And the Ottomans, of course, and the Austrians are the primary stars of her taking empire down a notch. But she has this, um, she has, because of her artistic interest, I think she has this idea of form that really is, 
almost distinct from content, you know? And so I think when she says you must blame Burma and India on empire, not on England, she's trying to say that like these different countries have merits that are distinguishable from all of their complicitness in empire, right? That Germany and England are both complicit in empire, but there's a distinction between their content that we should also still recognize. And I like, I don't think I agree with her if you put a gun to my head and say like, does she have a point? But I will say it was a provocative thing to think, you know what I mean? It was a provocative thing to hear that like, um, the problem is almost this form of expansion, but we can still distinguish content. Like that's sort of in some ways just like a cheap pro England stance, except that she really does attack every single empire and she's weakest on England, which is maybe unforgivable, but she in the end does condemn it technically. She technically does condemn Imperial England. She just won't do it to the extent that she does every other one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we have to mention at least that there, there are a couple things in this book that if you read them in like 2018, you're like, whoops, like, ah, like a couple of months uh, when it's like, a, like anytime she talks about African-Americans, there's a little bit of like a whoops, mm. like it's, it's, and it's not, it's not a big part of the book, but a, she's still in a time when you can describe a color like of a sheep as quote N word Brown. And I know, uh, I'm like, Oh, you can't do that. But that's not, that's obviously not a major thing. It's just, you know, times change. No, it was, no, I totally, I did. Well, actually I I had a whole, I think I had a note about this where I said, you know, um, that was her weakest point. Cause she, she would always try and bring up like oppressed peoples. And so she's doing it of course to advocate for the oppressed, I think, you know? Um, but she, she definitely has, you know, that, that like, that, that, that like, that that helpful liberal problem, right? Where you're still maybe endorsing on accident racist tropes, by, but, but you're trying to help. Um, and I think she's the worst, actually, because she's been to America a bunch. She's actually been to Colorado, which I loved. I was like, yeah, write about Colorado. I'd love to hear more. Um, <laughs> but she talks, whenever she talks about um, black people in the South of America, the, what was really cringing to me is like, she talks about them as, as if they're foreign. And again, it's, it's like twice. Yeah. It's like out of a, you know, out of a 1100 page, 500,000 word book. It's like three asides that are, that are not worth getting into probably, except to say that it did raise my eyebrows and it did make me think like I should be careful saying that she's totally unbiased, which she doesn't pretend to be, but she does have this air of objectivity, which is hard to deny partly because I guess to pivot to something else, um, she has interlocutors the whole book, right? And at least one of the most important interlocutors is Constantine. And so this kind of gets us maybe more of the narrative side of things in some ways. And so I was just curious what you felt about Constantine, plus her other interlocutors, plus her other interlocutors, if you thought that they were effective or maybe sometimes convenient. So, um, throughout the book, um, almost the entire book, they are being sort of shown around this country by this guy she calls Constantine, and that's he's kind of a composite character, is my understanding, but he's pretty closely hooked to a guy named Stanislav Vinover, who certainly yeah. took this trip with her. Uh, and he he's a very important uh, Serbian poet. Like he's on, I think, some other stamps to this day. Uh, yeah, he's like, like he's like a T.S. Eliot figure. He's well yeah. known. Um, and like he's working for the government in some kind of nebulous position, which is not, I'm not clear if it's nebulous because it was think, unclear what Stanislav <laughs> Vinever was doing, or because yeah. she's occasionally he's partly a fictional character. I mean, well, uh, I think, he, I think, I think, I think Stanislav and Const- I think he's a censor. I think that's one of his biggest jobs, right? Is that he, he does do that to, at least. Yes. Yeah. He's supposed to, that's part of his job is to censor material for the reading public, which is, you know, for a poet to do is already kind of an interesting dynamic. 
and he he's so he's her guide he'll be like here's what's going on in this particular place and he'll also be a guide to whatever social cultural disputes are happening right now right so like mm-hmm. there's a the big dispute in yugoslavia one of the big questions is should there be a yugoslavia because it was kind of a bunch of people somewhere else decided there should be one and it wasn't yeah completely without it wasn't like nobody there wanted that to happen some of the kings had been wanting there to be a south slav state for a while but it was certainly complicated uh, and so he'll be a guide both for the local political landscape and for you know the literal landscape about here's what's going on here but he's also becomes kind of he is definitely convenient at least how's this because in addition to being her friend he's a jewish serb who is married to the worst human being in the entire world. <laughs> who uh, happens to be German. <laughs> who is German. Uh, and her na- her actual name was Elsa Vinever, and apparently this is at least based on yeah, this is based actual on actual relationship. Yeah, from what but I she, can read, she is same. Every single thing that Rebecca West hates about Austria, you know, Germany, she's this rabidly anti-Semitic, uh, racist, horrible, shrewish woman who is just... I mean, I can't believe any of this actually. I mean... This is this is the so the book and you're asking about this like the the book is structured as and then Constantine said four paragraphs of stuff and you're like yeah. Garp, she did not he did not either say that like that's not there's he may have said something like that but there's no way you have the memory unless you were just transcribing everything around you as you went that he said this and also this is not how people talk like right. I understand that people talk differently in Serbo-Croat in 1940 or whatever but they didn't talk I promise they didn't talk like that yeah. Um, <laughs> And so these people become sort of idealized versions of themselves that she can pair off and try out to have these monologues, which I'm not saying didn't aren't accurate in terms of roughly what people were saying, but they're definitely not literal transcriptions of conversations. And they definitely, some of these conversations, I'm sure, were synthesized from several other bits since, you know. Uh, and it's definitely effective as a political thing. It does make it you feel a little bit weirder about it as a travel log <laughs> does that make sense yes like... <laughs> yes yeah well so i i think it's interesting because i think you know i think at time like when she's so clear on what she's doing like she's never going to say i made this dialogue up but i don't think she expects you to, to believe that like this is just the conversations as they happened right no yeah i don't, um, I don't think she's being dishonest that's not what I. yeah yeah no no, no I, I, don't, I don't think you think that either i was just saying but i think she ends up doing this thing where like it felt to me like there's, you know, early on there was definitely some dialogue, but it felt like the dialogue got more and more stylized in the sense of like it becomes almost platonic dialogue. I mean, platonic yeah. like like Plato's dialogues, not like yeah, idealism. Dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think you know she almost does this weird thing where she she lets the ideas come to the fore of the book through other people's having disagreements, right? Which I think is really smart. Um, on one level, and I think, and I think you can almost read it two ways. When she has, um, she has these locals, right? She has Constantine, and then she also has a couple other people early on, and then throughout the book, like she has Melissa, who she loves, and of course, the, I will say Rebecca West. Nothing else. She's convincing because I will say the people that she loved, I also loved. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's nothing else. I don't know. Like we don't have to like dissect it why, but like when she loved someone, I was like, oh my god, Melissa, she is the best. You know, yeah. and I just it was totally convincing, but. So you can you could you could view it two ways I think um, that on one hand she you if you're really cynical you could say that she's ventriloquizing right she's using these locals to say her own things to give it a gloss of you know, native authority right I don't think that's totally I think that's not fair um, but I they could be a critique um, what you could also say is that she is trying to get outside of her own biases as much as possible 
Because honestly, she is contradicted by people, right? Constantine yeah. constantly contradicts her. And you know what? She calls him at the end of the book, one of the most cultured men of Europe. And she means it. And I don't think she's putting him down to just say he's wrong. Even at the end of the book, when their relationship is soured, she lets him have his say. And there are times when he's convincing. I find him convincing at times in, in the face of what she's saying, you know? Like when he accuses them of their Englishness, um, sometimes she's doing that to, sh you know, like they're they're lazy or they want more or they whatever. He accuses them of having certain these certain biases. And at some points, she maybe does that to show that the relationship is souring a little bit. But actually, I think she does it because he has a point. There are times when it seems like they are really being cheap with their summary of, you know, this church or this area. Like, they don't realize the clash of cultures. And then he lets her know. And then there are a few points when after he lets her know something, she then goes into a big history of something. You know what I mean? Like, he, she yes. lets him instigate her authority. You know what I mean? Which, I, which I, I think is probably overall a good move. But yeah, so no, so I, I, I thought the other interlocutors were basically not, you know, not important. But I do think we should delve into, just for a second at least, Gerda. Who, in the book, um, his wife's name is Gerda, which of course, even that's like a mean name. Like her real name is Elsa. Elsa's a beautiful name. Gerda is like a mean German name, I think, for an English um, hearer. And so at one point she characterizes Gerda as having a blonde, blind hate, <laughs> yes. which is like the most fabulous Rebecca Westism, but also brutally reductive. And so I don't know. I just wanted to. I wanted to ask more about her because Gerda takes over the book at some point. At some point, the issue of Gerda, in some ways, instigates or offers evidence of Rebecca West's argument that hate, hate, pure and simple, is the reason the Serbs were dominated and the reason we're going to have a second world war. And so I didn't know, I wanted to hear maybe what you thought of the Gerda narrative and then what, what she made of the Gerda narrative. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's definitely one of the most important parts of the book. Uh, I, she, okay. I think it's, first of all, I think she's a compelling, one of the things this book isn't often very, I don't know, like good at, it's not what we're trying to do. It's just not that much interesting as, and then we went to this place and had a lot of adventures. They really don't, like nothing no. really happens to them. They just go places and look at churches and talk to people, right? Right. Which is sounds like a wonderful vacation. I don't mean that, but like if yeah. you were gonna write a, you know, me and my husband went on a European vacation for six weeks. You'd expect to read about misadventures and stuff like that. Nothing really like that occurs, um, except that they get stuck with Gerda, who is a nightmare, um, and she's a nightmare for a couple of reasons. She's just very rude personally. <laughs> like there's a couple of great. And I guess they didn't, I guess she doesn't realize that Rebecca West speaks Serbo-Croat because occasionally she will editorialize yeah, she to her husband in Serbo-Croat and just say like, I cannot believe how hypocritical they are. And Rebecca West apparently is just like, just doesn't <laughs> respond, which is great. This um, woman has no taste, Constantine. <laughs> Rebecca yeah. West just writes it down in her notebook. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she'll, she, she, I think she serves a couple of purposes. One, just as a way of showing what life is like as sort of these imperialists. Like, they just don't understand the value of anything they're seeing. Like, they constantly... She constantly complains that things are ugly. Uh, they're, they're uncivilized. They're unimportant. They see, like, a war memorial dead for a bunch of allied soldiers in the First World yeah. War who had died protecting a Serb town. I don't remember all the details. And the great bit is... And Constantine fought in the First World War, of course, right? And, like, yes. was taken prisoner. Right. And he is Serbian. Like, he's not from somewhere else. He is Serbian. And yeah. uh, his wife looks at him and just says, Why did all these people die for some Slavs? <laughs> I know. And, like, it's, of course, it's it's funny, except that it's horrible because she's a Nazi. <laughs> like, she's, the, the people just yeah, like her now are currently, yeah. or not, you know, are contemporaneously running, uh, you know, one of the biggest war machines in history. Um, 
And I think she's, in addition to being sometimes comic relief, particularly early on, I think before Rebecca Rest realizes that she's not just, like, unpleasant, but she's, like, actively... She's the problem of Europe. Yeah. Yeah. And who is making Constantine worse, um, which is, in that way, I think Constantine and Gerda feel kind of convenient, although I'm not saying it didn't happen, because Constantine kind of feels like the soul of Yugoslavia, which is being corrupted by Gerda, who is German. Um, And that feels like almost a two-pat, like, metaphor, but... It also might be sort of what was happening, so I'm not saying it's it was wrong. Um, but the, the best bit with Gerda I want to focus on is... Well, actually, I should ask you, what did you think about it? I should quit monologuing. What did you think about What What kind of thoughts did you have about Gerda? <laughs> no, I, I, I was very similar. I mean, I thought... Um, I mean, I, I, I will say, I mean, I remember when Gerda left the party and I, like, I danced, you know? Like, yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, thank goodness, Gerda's gone. And what was interesting, of course, is that Gerda's presence lingers because she's... She sort of is, she's, you know, not sort of, um, she's virulently anti-Semitic as well as being anti-Slav. And so in that way, she represents kind of the heart of the hatred of, of Germany and Austria at the time that at least Rebecca West is identifying or trying to identify. Um, but I, I did think she was, she was honestly like, I, she was such a caricature and yet I still was compelled by it because Rebecca West takes the time to tell you, look, like her and her husband have a whole, have a whole conversation, right? Like, look, no one's going to believe us if we tell them that Gerda was this bad. No one will yeah. believe us, right? No one will believe us, yes. <laughs> and I remember in the, in the margins, I was like, I mean, maybe you guys were assholes sometimes. Like, maybe sometimes Gerda was just put off because you guys were like, you know, you sound like an abrasive woman sometimes, you know? Like, your husband sounds like kind of a know-it-all. Like, maybe that was annoying to her every now and then. Um, but, but... I mostly, I mostly was okay with it because first of all, Rebecca West is funny and could make Gerda funny, and also the reactions to Gerda funny. And then also the really key thing is she's like, no one's going to believe us that Gerda was this bad, which was the whole reason the Holocaust happened, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's the whole reason World War II happens. It's the whole reason six million Jews are killed. It's because no one's going to believe that something this ugly could be this plain could be this out in front of my face. And um, and for that reason, I, I found maybe maybe she is a contrivance. You know, maybe it's, I mean, again, based on like Wikipedia and Peter sources, like the guy who's, you know, Constantine's based on, he did marry a German who was anti-Semitic and they did have like marital troubles because of her not liking Jews or Slavs, both of which he was. Um and yet, I because of the stakes of World War II and because of sort of like, almost like the banality of evil thing, right? She does kind of Hera, Hannah Arendt in narrative form before Hannah Arendt's around. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah. So in the end, I thought I found it very convincing. I did find it sometimes the most annoying parts to get through because Gerda is so awful. She's like the she is actually the worst human alive. But she just she's just standing for Hitler. That's all she is. She's like no art and no love of mankind. <laughs> So one of the scenes that happened with her that both really cemented that, oh, she's really a monster, not just, like, socially incompetent, and also that I thought is relevant to think about today is, so they're in, where the heck are they? Just a minute. They're in Macedonia somewhere. So they're in Skoplia, and there's a uh, a Roma quarter, right? There's a quarter of Skoplia where there have been Romani people living for a bajillion years, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are 2,000 houses there, so... 10,000, uh, of course, these gypsies a lot, which my understanding is that's that's not the right word. Um, but 
uh, Gerda sees them and just loses her mind. Um, and she literally shouts within hearing of one of them, look at them, they should be driven out. They should be driven out. Um, she, she talks about how she feels when she sees them as though she is not in Europe, you know. Um, yeah. Of course, A, you know, it sounds, again, it sounds like, who would do this? But of course, Nazi Germany killed, uh, I think, something exactly. like... exactly. 500,000 Romani people. Like, they, they did it uh, for no particular reason other than just naked hatred. So I'm sure this thing happened. Like, I, I guess I don't know specifically if Elsa Vinever did this, but right. I'm sure that people did this. And I think a lot about, but this, I feel like I'm not in Europe comment is, I think, what I want to hinge on for a minute because as everyone around her says, these people, like th- this particular group of Romani people have been living in Skoplia for hundreds of years. Right. <laughs> you know, like this isn't, this isn't new in any sense. <laughs> um, well, yeah. I was just gonna say, you know, what's interesting. So I'm doing, I work at a library right now and I do, um, I do these screenings of these like little, um, Rocky Mountain PBS documentaries on Colorado. Um, and so it's like, you know, it's like half an hour and it's locally produced. It's really well done. It's actually quite awesome. But um, I show it at this like historical society in Westminster, Colorado. And it's usually like me and eight other people. And everyone, of course, is older because they care about history. <laughs> and so no one young comes, which is always a bummer. But what's interesting is a lot of the films, you know, are talking about the transition from basically a lot of the territory in in and around Colorado being um, Spanish territory, like right. Yeah. New Mexico was the capital of their region. And then of yeah. course it becomes American. And so the talk is about like, you have a lot of these Hispanic communities in Colorado that actually have been there, of course, for hundreds of years. Um, and so it was really interesting because we had this whole you know, conversation about like that there is this really problematic narrative in, in Colorado, but also the same thing you're talking about, um, with this Roma quarter of, you know, Sculpia, whatever it's called, um, that the dominant culture doesn't mean other cultures haven't been coexistent forever within the mainstream, you know, like, okay, Cardo is 80% white now, but of course it was a Spanish territory. And there's this Spanishness at its roots that go back way beyond, you know, recent immigration. And I think it's, but it's interesting because you talk about, the, it's always like an essentialist conversation, Right. But essentialism never really ends up working because it's just history is just too contingent, you know? Absolutely. Like there was a Twitter thread going around the other day. I think it was Jim Garrity for National Review, actually. But there was a Twitter thread he did about how people of color have been fighting in American wars, basically, for the entire oh, time. Like the entire time it's been America. <laughs> one of the French, I didn't realize this, uh, one of Rochambeau's aides estimated that one quarter of the American soldiers at Yorktown were black. Yeah. I, no, no, I know. I know. I, yeah. Who, who knows if that's correct? But that meant there right. were at least enough black people at Yorktown that somebody could think that. You know what I mean? Right. No, <laughs> I there, know. There were exactly. A couple of Asian, there were like sixty Asian American soldiers who fought in the Civil War for the Union. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. No, it's true. Um, well, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And like specifically, this notion of like, I feel like I'm not in Europe is not only historically illiterate, but I think it, we hear this all the time now, both with Europe and with the United States. To echo your point about Colorado having been you know a spanish territory before it was an english territory i was getting my hair cut in minneapolis a while ago and i was talking to the barber which you shouldn't do uh you Ever. should just be quiet uh <laughs> no one should no actually you know what no one should talk to me in public in general that would be to be a... <laughs> like, i'm already i'm already such an awkward person like this person is going to sit here and like touch already, me for 20 already, minutes and i would cutting just like on to me, not you know? do that <laughs> yeah. uh, but i was being nice and i was talking to her and i forget i, I don't remember the specifics but i mentioned something about texas like i had been in el paso not that long before 
I don't even remember how it came up, but it's, somebody from Texas came up and she said something like, yeah, there's a lot of Hispanic people living there. And I was like, uh, yeah, like, well, it's well called, like, it's I, called I El Paso. And she said something to the effect of, why are there so many? And I was like, well, because of the, because it was, and I, I said, you know, because I tried to be as nice as I could, because I'm not trying to be a jerk. Also, she's got sharp things near my throat, you know, yeah, but I was yeah. trying to say, yeah, I think I said, well, you know, before the Mexican-American War. Uh, and it's before you know t- Texas seceded. It was it was Mexico. Like it was it was that's where actually all that stuff just was. Mexico. Yeah, and was for quite a while before that, and was Spanish territory. Of, I don't know. I don't know the history, but like it was it was Mexico before it was anything else. And she didn't know this, <laughs> right? right? Like she she was flabbergasted by that. Uh, and so that that sort of illiteracy definitely gives problems. Well, first of all, how did that happen? Like what high school failed her? Because that's not a like a rare like this isn't no, 60 I... Asian Americans fighting in the Union War. Like this this right. should have been covered. But also, like how that really shapes the way people feel when they're making these, when they're voting and stuff. This notion that there was a white Europe and a white America that was not was one hundred percent white, and only recently has started changing. And because you hear people say this all the time, like people go to Minneapolis, which has a, a pretty diverse population, certainly in the in the downtown areas, right? Not not so much like in the suburbs, but in in Minneapolis proper, it's got a pretty diverse population. We have. I think the largest Somalian population in the country and so on. Um, and so you walk around and there's a lot of different kinds of people around and you'll get people saying things like, I don't think I'm in America. Like I didn't even realize I was in America. I didn't realize I was in Minnesota. People say that. And there's a whole, you know, the identity Europa goofballs, the really, really boring, you know, sort of neo-Nazi guys. who will talk about Europe, you know, should be pure Europe. Like, well, Europe has never been pure Europe. <laughs> like this, right. this is not, this is not a thing. This is not a real past you can grab onto. There was no such thing. These, you know, the, the Romani have been living in Skopje for more for longer than there has been a Germany. Like, you need to understand that this isn't how yeah. this works. Well, uh, and what's, and and what's, it's still such a problem today. Well, and what's crazy to me, and like, this isn't to elide the ways in which mainstream cultures, you know, have been able to develop personality because they've been oppressive to peoples of color or, pe- you know, any kind of minority. And, and, and of course, in the Balkans, most of the minority is based on religion, right? Because, yeah. um, like, the Serbo-Croats, as she calls them, right? And she, she really, at the beginning, she really emphasizes this. Like, they're the same people. One half, like, they're just Roman Catholic or they're Eastern Orthodox, right? They had this, like, split yeah. history, but they're the same peoples. Which I, of course, even that basic knowledge, I'm not sure I knew in that kind of, you know, really watered-down way. Um, what I was going to say, though, is, like, so, but what's what's also interesting is that, like, the idea that, like, you can't have a culture if someone else also has a culture. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That like, like there's this crazy idea that like, because there exists this Roma quarter, like what about that actually threatens Gerda's enjoyment of the things in Europe she enjoys, right? Yeah. Like, like her German beer gardens, all that stuff, that still exists. That's not being, and actually like, if there's any worry, it's that the Roma culture would be erased, right? Like, um, which yeah. is probably why this book is so, I think, um, topical for the moment but also convincing in general because when she attacks the ottoman empire i mean yeah i think there is some islamic stuff in there that is problematic but actually what she's usually attacking is the ottoman empire as an empire that erased other cultures right that was the problem is that they took over a land and wiped clean its christian orthodoxy or at least tried to right they actually took the nobles of the locals and you know converted them to muslim and made them rulers in a, you know, like that was the idea, right? Was to try and erase from the ground up who the people used to be. And of course, the Austrians did just as bad. And of course, by the way, Rebecca, the English weren't so great in India. Um, 
or in America, actually. Um, and so all, all to say is like, I, but I, I love this idea that like, um, she's a defender of specific cultures in a way that I think also a person who is mistaking the presence of Mexicans in Cardo, you know, for being a threat, like she's a defender of culture in a way that someone like that might actually appreciate in a weird way. I know that's a dangerous term, but you know what I mean? Like she really thinks that national character is good. I just think she thinks it can hold a lot more in it than other people do. Does it make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. I would agree. Um, yeah. So no, I th- yeah. And so I, yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was definitely, I'm glad you brought that up. That was definitely one of the more relevant parts of the book. Um, what else did you want to talk about? I've been asking a lot of questions. Is there stuff that you wanted to get into at all about like, I mean, this book is so big, but there are things that just stick out to you when you think through it in your mind. You've hit a lot of the big things I wanted to talk about or ask questions about. Um, there's a couple of just smaller things I kind of want to, uh, one funny note. At one point they're hanging out with some, who are they? Let me get it. Let me get this right. Just one second. They're hanging out. Yeah, they're in Macedonia, and there's a bunch of, like, drunk young men nearby. And there's one of them, he's like an acrobat. Like, he's sleeping, and then he gets up and just, like, starts standing on his hands or something. Oh, yeah. The point is, they're just, like, young men who are... And there's a lot of sort of nationalist stuff going on and identity. And they all break into a rendition of John Brown's body. Oh, yeah. Which was an old song of the Kamataji, which were basically the guerrilla fighters against the imperialists. Right. And, like, what a funny thing that is. Like, how did that happen? Like, that's what I want to know. Is like, I mean, I I can imagine how it happened. But, like, what specifically resulted in that Union Army, like, uh, (laughs) abolitionist song making its way to Yugoslavia only, like, 60 years later? Like, how did that happen? (laughs) No, I know. That's, I know. That's, if I ever have... Uh, the time or patience to read this book again. I say patience not because it was a trying book in the sense of like, it was a pleasure to read. I just, it was like, it became for a while the only thing I did besides work in some ways. Like, even though I didn't read it as much as I should have, um, I, I, there's so many aside. So I was going to say, one of the things I wanted to not lose in this big discussion is that um, she's really funny. She's like one of yeah, the funniest writers. So I said earlier that, that Jeff Dyer, he did a great little intro for a different edition of the book that we don't have. Um, but it's published online. So he talks about this book being a, an accomplishment of tone. And so I, there's one example that I picked out that he also quotes. And I'll, but I'm going to give two examples of how she's funny. One of them is that, so she's in the middle of this big discussion of Stephen Deshan, Deshan in the 14th century, right? The king of, you know, the Serbs who was maybe going to be the reason the Serbo uh, Serbian empire was going to be good if it had been allowed to survive, right? It's this huge, important thing. And then so she goes, uh, she talks about, okay, in the 49th year of Stephen Duchan's life, at a village so obscure that it is not now to be identified, he died in great pain, as if he had been poisoned. Because of his death, many disagreeable things happened. For example, we sat in Pristina, our elbows on a tablecloth stained brown and puce with chicken drumsticks on our plates, meager as sparrow bones. And she goes on a little bit, like there came towards us a man and a woman and the woman was carrying on her back the better part of a plow. Like, that's the crazy... And Jeff, Jeff Dyer says it. It's the craziest, boldest jump cut of any art form I've ever read. Because it's in the middle yeah. of this, like, esoteric, in the sense that I'm an idiot and don't know anything, so it's far outside my knowledge, narrative of King Dushan, who, of course, I'd never heard of. And then she just jumps right back to this hysterical moment. A moment that I actually laughed out loud of with... um 
is uh, she she's talking to these people very earlier on in the book. Uh, I think they're Croatian. And she says her husband and her took an early opportunity to ask their friends why they and their world were against the Yugoslav state. <laughs> their friend's first reply was to look very handsome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she, it's great. Like she just throws those in there as a way to like, I think to get you through the book, but also because that's how she actually experienced the world. She has this really amazing wit that filters things in a way that's like helpfully pithy, you know? Um, and I just think it was a yeah, she used it to really, really good effect every single chapter. I thought, um, so yeah, that's like maybe a good question to get us close to the end, um, unless you have a lot of other stuff. But uh, any chance you'll ever re- re- reread this book, you think, Bill? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think there's some chance. Uh, if I do find myself out, I mean, I, I don't know as I'm ever going to find myself in a position to go to the Balkans. I, it's, not, yeah. it's not that I would refuse to go. I just It's probably not one of the top places. You know what I mean? I don't travel very I mean, much same. internationally, so I'm unlikely to. But... If A, if I ever do, I will almost certainly maybe not read the book cover to cover, but at least look at some stuff. I will have it with me for sure, yeah. Um, but I don't know. It's the sort of book that it feels important. Like like I said, I really would. I would finish something, and I just kind of want to think about it for a I minute. I know. Which is not usually how I feel about a book like this. Like, I usually kind of get through it, and I think about it afterwards, but I don't stop halfway through the book to think about it. You know what I mean? And it, it's... Some of the... Some of the I don't know. If I do, it'll be a long time from now. How's that? Like, I could see picking this up in, like, 25 years and reading it again. Um, I'm not going to read it again next year unless for some, you know, some reason I'm... I don't know why. I would not be be likely to do that. I don't know. What do you think? I think I'm in the same boat. I also... I mean, I think that I would maybe reread parts of it sooner than later. Like, I wouldn't mind glancing over the prologue or the epilogue again. Um, I my my copy of the book, which I mean, like you and I, you took a lot of notes. I think you took more notes than I did, like on a notebook or whatever. I took at least seven pages of notes, which this is you know, this is us doing this for fun, right? This is just but like I wanted to just to keep track of what's going on. I wrote notes in a Google Doc we share, and but what I kept doing that I couldn't stop doing is I kept annotating. I kept like I yeah. kept like I kept reacting to the text as if Rebecca West was talking to me, which I, t- I tell you what I I don't actually usually do that, you know. Um, and I think it was a testament to her that like, at one point I told myself, you have got to read this book faster. You are doing a podcast, <laughs> like you've got to go faster. And this is the one book, which I think you and I talked about this a couple of days ago. This is the one book since maybe high school when we both read Crime and Punishment <laughs> that I just could not enforce my will on it. Right. Like usually if I want to go faster in a book, you know what, I'm going to start. I'm gonna start skim reading. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna just blow through it. I'm just gonna up the pace of like my indentation. I can usually do that. I couldn't with this book. She wouldn't let me go as fast as I wanted to, which I I I think is a a, a huge compliment because part of it was she kept seducing me into going slower. You know, she yeah. kept giving me jokes or insights or a description of you know someone's cl- clothing that I wanted to just take in. I wanted to just try and even if I forgot it later. I wanted to experience it in the moment. Um, no, I, but, I would agree. Yeah. So I, was, I was talking to some friends uh, uh, part, sometimes in like one of the Discord spaces that you and I are in and also another one that we use for our game team, for my amateur video game team I'm on. And like I'd finish a practice with my game team and they'd be like, you want to keep playing? I was like, no, I have to go keep reading this book. <laughs> this, book is, this book is kicking my ass. And a friend of mine would be like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Like, gosh, is it that bad? And I'm like, 
no, that's not it. Like, I don't know how to, <laughs> like, it's I the know. opposite of it bad. It's the op- It's the best book I've read in a while, or at least the most yeah. book, I don't know, maybe not the best book full stop, but the best, the most sort of engaging, like, you can't look away from it and you need to pay incredible attention to it book I've read in a very long time. Yeah. So it's that, like you're saying, like, I did have to blitz through a little bit towards the very end because I was just out of time because we'd already pushed this back too many times. Right. But it was hard to do and it wasn't yeah. very many pages because I yeah. intended to do that earlier. I intended to just put my notebook down and just, and I no, like four hours would pass by and I'd read a hundred pages. <laughs> right, right. Well, and you know what's funny? The, the Almost the last thing I'll say about the book um, that I just feel like I have to in some ways because you mentioned it it does feel like one of the most important books I've read. Um, yeah. Like I, I finished it on the, like the last page. I've got something really cheesy even where I've, I've, I say it, I say like, wow, an impossible book. And then I call it nearly life-changing. <laughs> I think to you, I call it life-changing and a bully, um, a life-changing bully at the very least. But I, and I just want to, I want to maybe just hesitate over what I mean by important or what maybe what you mean too, because um I actually, so I, I did, I felt a real high after I finished the book, partly because I was like, I finished the book. I, yeah, I deserve, I deserve yeah. self-admiration. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, um, I think that I was genuinely enthusiastic about like, here is someone who did something so without compromise, uh, artistically, uh, intellectually, and of course, in the end, for probably a good cause right she is making an argument against empire in all of its forms as it's existed at every form right and i just the fact that she includes everything from rome to the austro-hungarian technically england but just barely that to me it seems so important and yet the next day you know i went to work we have a series of meetings and i was just confronted with like how far outside the mainstream this thing is, you know, like to tell someone I wrote a book on Yugoslavia is to tell someone that I am an alien that they cannot understand, (laughs) you know, and not, and not, and not because like I'm anything special. I'm just some idiot who likes to read, you know, and you and I like to talk about it. But um, what was crazy is this book kind of, in addition to making me kind of had this jacked up feeling after that, there was almost this like depression about this book is so important and I don't know what to do with that importance. You know, I don't know how to transmute that into something that is actually in the world and not just inside of me. You know, does that make sense? And, um, make sense. and what was craziest is I was confronted with it immediately because I was in this mind numbing series of, of meetings with people who are smart and who are competent at their job. And yet like they're the, the kind of gatekeepers of literature, they're librarians. And for them, this is so outside the mainstream. It's like, I just, I realized the ways in which Rebecca West and her, and her legacy have been marginalized. I felt like an inkling of that because they shouldn't be. And I have no idea how to get stuff like this out of the, out of the, out of the edges of life. Such a, I was reading some, I think maybe Jeff Dyer's, but somebody online was saying that this book will show up on a lot of like best lists of 20th century and so on. But he says that it's often sort of elided as to why you just get like two sentences yeah. about it's important about Yugoslavia and life and that's it. And it's because it is a very difficult book to describe. Um, you know, I would sort of say I was reading a book about Croatia, which is because that's the chapter I was in. So then it was right. like, I'm reading a book about Yugoslavia and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> well, no, I'm reading a book about like life. Like, I don't know what, the, yeah. like, I don't know how to, 
but it's 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 not it's it's odd to describe a book where she gets really mad at people's taste in furniture as unpretentious, but it actually is kind. You know what I mean? Like, cause yes. it is. And that actually is one like, tiny thing I do want to mention real quick before we get done. But like, he, he it is not like it doesn't feel <laughs> like it's very honest. I guess is my point. Like, she's not pretending yeah. she's not a bit of an upper class twit. Like, she doesn't pretend that she doesn't again have strong opinions about aesthetics and furniture or whatever. But like, she's trying to wrestle with things, and she will change her mind in the book. You know, she yes. will, and she'll tell you. You know, and I let I allowed myself to think that maybe nothing of value was lost at Kosovo, and then I couldn't do that anymore. Like the next chapter heading is like, but I couldn't think that way for long. Like it, it's she will, you go through her thinking through these very difficult problems, and she doesn't always come up with an answer. No. And for all for all that she is sometimes too willing to be like defense, like apologize for some of the bad like uh, things that the, like the nineteenth and early twentieth century Serbian leaders would do. She doesn't pretend that this is a perfect people has never done anything wrong like she, she she's i don't know i just it's a very honest book no i, you I think put it's your, a very good thing that it exists you put your finger on it partly for me is that because even the uh the takedown of rome and the chapter on diocletian and croatia and so forth and split um she actually talks about i realized i had been lied to my whole childhood yeah. right i realized that the narrative of rome we have can't be true because here is living proof that like the corruption is not nearly what they it didn't come from where they thought it came from or whatever. Um, yeah, and I, I so I agree. Seeing her change her mind and confront facts as openly as possible, it, it felt it felt very yeah it felt very invigorating and also very um, intimidating to be honest. And I and yet I really yeah I feel like a it's one of the few books where I actually I feel. I actually do feel sort of changed by it. You know, I don't know how to put that change into the world and not like in a cheesy way, but like, I don't know how to, how to act on anything that I feel, but I do feel differently. I think, you know, no, I would agree. So all right, anything else, Bill, anything else you want to add to the end of our podcast? I have one little silly joke, which okay. is just, I, it must've been really fun to travel around relatively underdeveloped countries as an important English person with a government official because they just walk up to places and just <laughs> they, people let them in everywhere and she touches the dead body of the czar <gasps> I know so yeah Czar Lazar's like, hand she doesn't she like brush his fingers yeah like everywhere she goes they'll just open the coffin of the saint and be like yep there's the dead body of saint such and such and I'm like hold hold up you can't do this but like I can't I, I cannot imagine that if I went to one of these places now I could walk up and be like boy because there's always a boy have you noticed there's always some boy yes, around with the key there is. like i don't think if i walked it was like boy unlock this mosque for me i desire <laughs> to see it like i think i would get arrested like i just don't think you can do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> no you can't I'm not, yeah that's that's a good point because it is it's in a book it's a book of an immense privilege but it is a book of immense privilege that leverages that privilege on behalf of this i think vital argument against basically oppression oppression in its very specific european um iteration so, but yeah, I do. I, I agree with you. If you and I ever go to Croatia, which we should try and do, maybe I just realized um, we definitely got to bring this book and just read aloud the funny parts because it's so funny, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. But uh, yeah, it's a great book, man. So, it's a really good I, book. Definitely. It, it is. It is a project, but it is. I mean, I think every book we've read so far on this project is worth reading. But this is this, this is the book. Yeah. This is the one, I think, this year. Like, they're all good. I think this is probably the one if I had to. No, and like, I tell you what. If you made it to the end of this podcast, you can read the damn book. <laughs> 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 all right. Anything else? You good? Uh, I think that's everything on this book. We haven't fully decided what our next 
books are. We'll announce that on Twitter. We, we, we picked all of our books at once last year, and so we may do that again just to make sure we get a... So the point is we'll announce later what we're reading next, but the podcast is going to continue. Um, and we're, we we're also hope- may try to... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying we're hoping... Yeah, we're actually hoping to do kind of a a year in reading of 2018 or, or what a year of wrap up um, in the next couple of weeks, right? You still want to do that, right? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. So we're hoping to do a podcast. It won't be about a book in particular. It'll probably just be about our year in reading and other various things that we want to talk about. So um, definitely look for that as well. Cause I, I think that will be a fun one to record and hopefully a fun one to listen to. All right. So I think that's everything I've got to say. I think you should, uh, if you're listening, you should consider reading Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. If you're not listening, you should also consider it, but you're never going to find out I said that. So never mind. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right, Bill. I'll talk to you later, man. Yes, sir. Talk to you later. Final thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcast. You can find both of them on SoundCloud if you'd like to hear more of their music. Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting service. And, uh, you know, we'll see you next time.